Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre-finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin-Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Ladies and gentlemen, thrilled to have you here for another epic debate. This is going to be a fun one, folks. Very excited to have you here. And if it's your first time here at Modern Day Debate, want to let you know we are a nonpartisan channel focused on giving everyone their fair shot to make their case on an equal playing field in topics including science, religion, and politics. So we're excited for this one. Want to let you know what we are going to be doing tonight despite the thumbnail so sorry about that. It's actually, tonight's topic is, did Jesus exist? So we have not gotten to have this one for a long time, and we just had a small error on the thumbnail. I'll be fixing that shortly, but want to let you know as well, no matter what walk of life you come from, we really do hope you feel welcome, folks. Christian, atheist, you name it, we are glad that you are here. Also, want to let you know that each of the speakers are linked in the description below. So this is a great opportunity to introduce the speakers. And by the way, want to let you know, both of these guests have been here before. We're thrilled to have them back. And so we'll start with Dr. Richard Carrier, who we appreciate so much. You're uh, going the extra mile for us, Dr. Carrier. And so your flexibility, uh, despite the circumstances, I'll, I'll kind of let you share. And so also want to hear though, what could people expect to find at your link if this is somehow the first time that they've uh, heard about you? We're thrilled to have you here, Dr. Carrier. Oh, uh, yeah. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you're always a great host. So uh, looking forward to it. I'm uh, looking forward to talking to Jay as well. Um, at my website, uh, people can find links to buy the many books that I've written. Uh, my blog, you can find uh, links for uh, classes I teach. I teach online classes every month. And you can find my Twitter feed, my Facebook feed, and all of that stuff there. Plus, great deal else. Everything else you want to know about me and uh, all my work and so on. Uh, it is all at richardcarrier.info. Absolutely. And, yeah. I should tell people I am calling from my car. Uh halfway down a mountain because I now live up on a mountain <laughs> but my internet's out so all my comms are out up on the mountain so I had to drive down to uh, the chain park uh, where you have a huge turnout to put chains on your vehicle when it's snowed in uh, to get up the mountain so I get a little bit of service down here uh, cellular so uh, here I am on my cell phone in my car doing the debate tonight you got it. Well, we appreciate your flexibility, so this could still happen. This is going to be a great one. And, CJ, glad to have you back as well. want to mention, though, I, I feel like, Dr. Carrier, forgive me, like, uh, I mean, I know you don't mind. You're, you're an easygoing guy, but I want to let people know. Forgive me to the audience. I, I have to let you know that Dr. Richard Carrier has debated people such as William Lane Craig, Mike Lacona, and many other, you could say, heavyweight scholars or debaters. And so this is a real treat to have him back. And so it's, uh, it's hard to explain exactly how awesome this is going to be. And so we'll kick it over to CJ as well. Glad to have you back. CJ, the floor is all yours. If you'd like to share what people can find at your link as well. I think you might be on mute. My apologies. Um, so yeah, my name is uh, TJ Cox. I run the Synagogue YouTube channel here. 
um, of course, on YouTube. Um, usually talk about things like politics and apologetics. Um, wanted to get into a little bit of, um, you know, philosophy and history, of course, and stuff like that. But want to see where this is going first. I want to bite off too much, you know, more than you can chew and stuff like that. But nonetheless, I've been, you know, getting into a bunch of debates here recently, primarily with atheists, uh, though I've had a couple debates in-house uh, a debate with a black Hebrew Israelite, and I've debated Nadir Ahmed um, really only once. Everything else besides that was a discussion. Um, whether or not that is, I guess, a, a serious, um, you know, notch under my belt is, is anybody else's guess. But nonetheless, um, that's sort of where I'm coming from. And I'm, you know, of course, very happy to be here today. And yeah, absolutely happy to get started. Absolutely. So this is going to be fun, folks. I want to let you know for the format, it's basically going to be a flexible 10 to 12 minutes from each side for their opening. That will be starting with the affirmative, which is CJ arguing that Jesus did exist. And then following that, Dr. Carrier will, of course, get his 10-minute opening statement, and then we'll go into that 60 minutes of open dialogue, followed by Q&A, should be about 30 minutes. So if you happen to have a question, feel free to fire it into the old live chat. If you tag me with at Modern Day Debate, it makes it easier for me to get every question in that list. And a super chat is also an option. So if you would like to have your question go to the top of the list, as well as if you'd like to be able to make, you could say, a comment or objection that each of the speaker or whoever speaker you're addressing would get to address or give a response to, you can do that with Super Chat as well. So with that, we will kick it over to CJ for his opening. The floor is all yours, CJ. Alrighty, so thank you guys very much. I'm obviously very happy to be here, as I said earlier, and I want to you know, obviously thank James and Dr. Carrier for being here with me. Um, I want to just start off by saying briefly, uh, shalom to everybody in the audience and blessings to you all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom I give the glory. Um, I suppose I am one of those dreaded fundamentalists that everybody warns you about. Uh, but nonetheless, I think this will be a good conversation. Um, so my position is, of course, that Jesus Christ did exist. Um, and I would even go farther as and say that not only did Jesus exist, but that the Jesus is portrayed in the Gospels is the Jesus who existed. Um, I think is, if we're looking at historical evidence, there is numerous historical evidences to uh, look at. He's abundantly attested to in the first century and second century uh, literature. And we're definitely going to go ahead and go through some of those right now because I don't have time to go through all of them. But the reason we won't have time to go through all of them is because it is truly uh, abundant, especially if you want to mention, although it's sort of in passing, uh, the ones that are a little bit questionable but may actually be references to Jesus. So the first one I want to start off with um, is actually the New Testament. Um, I take a different position than most, which is that the New Testament by itself is solid enough evidence to consider Jesus Christ a historical person. Um, I will say clearly, and I hope to defend it here today, that there is absolutely no good evidence whatsoever for the modernly scholar for the modern scholarly consensuses on things like Mark and priority, on things like the uh, lack of uh, disciples' authorship of the Bible and so on and so forth. The vast majority of these things are based either in circular arguments. For example, uh, Mark, we know, is one of the lowest Gospels because it has the lower evolved Christology. And we know that the Christology was evolved because Mark is the first Gospel, and it goes all the way up to John. Of course, that's a circular argument. Um, and there's other arguments that are like this or presuppositional arguments. Like, for example, we have Mark 13 and in Matthew, I believe, 24, um, you know, prophecies about destruction of Jerusalem. Obviously, prophecy doesn't happen, therefore, it must have been written after the fact. This is a presuppositional argument. And for the most part, this is the kind of arguments you tend to see 
with you know uh, things like saying Mark and priority rather than Matthew priority or something similar, uh, with people claiming that John or Matthew or Mark or Paul or etc. didn't write certain texts and so on and so forth. Um, if you take what is the traditional view and the view that was actually the accepted view for nearly 1700 years, um, Matthew is the first person who wrote any book of the New Testament and would have written, uh, written it within a decade of Jesus Christ's crucifixion sometime around the year 33 AD, though the year 30 has also been proposed. Uh, Mark would be coming after that before it was uh, before the Jews would have been banned from Rome, which is about 49 AD, which means it would be no later than sometime at about 48. And Paul would be writing after both Matthew and Mark actually were already in existence. Uh, this lines up with numerous things we actually hear from various church fathers. For example, Eusebius actually gives us what would be um, corresponding to our modern Gregorian calendar is 41 AD as the date for uh, the writing of Matthew. Uh, Irenaeus tells us that the writing of Matthew took place when Paul and Peter were in Rome which has to be, of course, before the year 49. We know it has to be before the year 49 because if they founded the church uh, in Rome, it has to be, of course, before the uh, before the Jews were banished. It can't be after the Jews were reinstated because the book of Romans is written at a time that would imply the church is already established sometime in the mid to early 50s. Um, so if we look at the evidence just right off of the bat there from the people who were closest to the situation, from the people who were... Uh, getting this in any sort of a, you know, uh, traditional sense or any sort of a custodial sense, right? Uh, they do have a unanimous uh, opinion as to when these books were actually written. Uh, another example of this is the book of Luke. Uh, the book of Luke does sort of presuppose a couple of things. For example, um, it doesn't have any sort of reference to Paul being killed, although it is very well attested church tradition. And by church tradition, I mean Christian tradition, not necessarily the tradition of a specific body. Uh, very well attested church tradition that Paul was executed at around the year 64, potentially as late as 68. Um, we, what we see in the book of Acts is a Paul who is, of course, alive, but has recently been arrested. And we see that this is, of course, the second one of his works who he is writing to a man by the name of uh, Theophilus. Some people have suggested Theophilus may potentially be a lawyer for Paul, though I think that's a little bit more speculative than I want to defend here today. Um, the book of Luke, John, uh, Mark, and Matthew all have prophecies in them that they don't end up stating within their own texts were fulfilled. This is a very interesting thing because the Bible is not shy at all about saying, and this includes the Gospels, about saying when prophecies within its texts were revealed during its time, or were fulfilled rather during its time. Uh, one of the immediate examples I can use is the book of Genesis when it promises Ishmael 12 princes. 12 princes are indeed begot within the pages of Genesis, and the Bible is not shy about that. Um, it doesn't care about a future apologetic that says, oh, this might have been something that is fulfilled after the fact. Therefore, it's just telling you what actually came to fruition. We see this in the Gospels as well with the betrayal of Judas. Um, it is said that one of the people will betray. Um, and in the uh, Gospel of John, it is actually explicitly stated to be Judas. And then the fruition of that comes to pass. And the Bible is not shy about that. Yet, for some reason, the Bible does not at any point in time uh, note the fruition of Jesus's prophecies regarding the destruction of Jerusalem. In fact, in numerous instances, it seems to talk about Jerusalem and the community in Jerusalem as if they actually still exist. For example, Matthew 24 does not appear to be doctored in a past tense way in order to make it sound like the people who were in Jerusalem had to flee in the past but no longer have to flee now. But in fact, you could read Matthew 24, if I am correct, of course, uh, at the time it was written and conclude, okay, this is uh, foretelling of a future time when I will have to flee 
to the mountains because of an attack here on uh, Jerusalem, so on and so forth. Um, if the New Testament can be trusted, which of course I say that it can, that means we have four and potentially five eyewitnesses to Jesus Christ. Uh, the four eyewitnesses that we would know would be Matthew, Mark, Peter, and James, James being a brother of Jesus and the other three being among his 12 disciples. We have a potential fifth as well, which would be Jude. Uh, there are those who have suggested Jude was an apostle. There are those who have suggested Jude was another one of the brothers of Jesus because he's said to be the brother of James. And there are those who have suggested he's both. There is also those who have suggested he's neither. So it's a little bit questionable in that particular case. But there is a, um, a potentially five and at least four eyewitnesses within the New Testament themselves, uh, itself rather. If we look at the three who are not eyewitnesses, uh, we will notice that all three of them were adult, alive, and well, of course this is if the traditional view is true, adult, alive, and in the proper area during Jesus's ministry. This is an incredibly important thing because it's one thing to say one is not an eyewitness, right? Paul was not an eyewitness to Jesus. He may not have met him. Okay, that's perfectly fine. I am not an eyewitness to John MacArthur, right? I am no, also not an eyewitness, nor I have, ever, have I ever met the mayor of the largest city in my state. However, I am a live adult and in the proper area involved in the proper fields to where I would know about that person. And therefore it is reasonable to assume that I could verify that person existed. This could be said of at least Paul and Mark and very probably of Luke as well. Um, outside of the New Testament, we have numerous Christian writings from people who would, if not fit in that exact same category, at least be very close to it. For example, we have an epistle of Barnabas, which is considered by most scholars to be authentic. Um, there is also the epistle that Clement of Rome wrote to the Corinthians. Uh, both of these are important because both Barnabas and Clement, uh, Clement excuse me, are actually mentioned explicitly in the New Testament. Uh, we also have writings from Ignatius of Antioch and writings from uh, Polycarp. And if you consider the works of Eusebius to be an accurate recollection of this man, we also have the preserved works of Papias as well. Um, this, excuse me, this brings us to 13 different Christian sources before the uh, before 100 years after the crucifixion of Jesus, which is an incredibly important thing considering the fact that Jesus would not be somebody who would be particularly well attested, even if the gospel stories were true. To give a perfect example of that, uh, I would venture to uh, I would venture to bet that nobody here in the audience, unless they've seen my recent hosting of a debate, or the people who I am uh, talking to right now, Richard Carrier, or uh, James Coons, right? I don't think you guys would have any idea about who William Branham was. Well, William Branham has 2 million followers who believe he was a prophet, right? That's an, an equal to the Orthodox Jews. It's equal to uh, groups like Black Hebrew Israelites, if not greater, groups that are much more popular than what are called message believers. Uh, he is believed to have worked miracles, including but not limited to rising the dead and healing a politician by the name of William David Upshaw, who actually wrote this and presented it to all of the different members of Congress. He can be associated with numerous high, uh, very highly popular people like Oral Roberts, Jim Jones, Billy Graham, and et cetera. And he is considered to be by many the architect of what we would call the modern apostolic restorationist movement and the copy uh, the person who most televangelists would copycat. And yet you probably have absolutely no, no idea who this person is, which proves that a person who does exist and is said to have, have certain miracles following their life can have a certain level of obscurity behind them uh, given a certain amount of circumstances. And of course, you would think it'd be incredibly less likely for somebody like William Branham, considering the fact that we have a lot of documentation and record in the modern day. Um, and of course, there is the many referenced 
uh, sources outside of Jesus, which I won't get into too much because I wasn't planning on defending them too much, but of course I'm sure they will come up. Um, Josephus references Jesus twice, uh, writing before the year 100. Uh, there is serious evidence to suggest that both Phallus and Mara Barsuparion, uh, I'm not entirely sure how you say his final name, but um, a person writing about the wise kings of the Greeks, uh, Socrates, Pythagoras, and a wise king of the Jews, who they executed. And then after they executed this wise king, uh, had their uh, kingdom immediately removed from them, or at least uh, preceding that in a close manner, right? Uh, there is obviously references from Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, uh, Suetonius, and so on and so forth, uh, Justin Martyr. Um, and, and so I think when you put all that together, it, it is very interesting. You know, there is a lot of figures in history who we do not and should not question who leave, or at least should be leaving, much more solid of a footprint in history um, who have way, way less sources than this and in a way smaller period or a, a way long over a way longer period of time, excuse me. Uh, people like Sun Tzu or Socrates are a little bit more questioned, but people even like Hannibal, for example, right? Or, you know, there's a single uh, reference to Imhotep, right? But no, uh, people do accept his existence. There's very few references, um, at least within his lifetime, to uh, people like Alexander the Great. Of course, there is references to Alexander the Great in his lifetime. I'm not saying that there's reason to doubt Alexander the Great's existence, but what I am saying is there's a lot of people who have a lot less references within the time frame we are given, right? Got about um, just 30 seconds to 60 seconds left. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you. Um, and, well, I mean, I kind of made my point already with that, right? The, the fact that I, I believe that these people are not questioned, they should not be questioned. But if we started applying the same level of standard to people like Hannibal, Sun Tzu, William Shakespeare, Socrates, so on and so forth, we would start concluding a lot of figures in history do not exist. Um, I personally find mythicism quite, all, uh, quite frankly, always to be lacking. I wouldn't say always necessarily. Obviously, there's some good examples. In fact, uh, Dr. Carrier brought up a good example in his book about uh, uh, Ned Ludd. But nonetheless... I, I, you know, for the most part, Muhammad mythicism, Socrates mythicism, so on and so forth. They tend to be very lacking, in my opinion, and I think this is no exception. Gotcha. We will kick it over to Dr. Carrier for his roughly, let's say, 10 to 12 minute opening statement as well. Dr. Carrier, thanks so much for being here. The floor is all yours. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Jay, too. Um, yeah, obviously, I disagree with almost everything Jay said. <laughs> um, the, uh, I'll, I'll start with the last thing. Uh, the whole idea that we have as much evidence for Jesus as we have for Hannibal and Alexander and Socrates, um, that's, uh, I'm not, maybe we'll get into that more later. Uh, that's definitely not true. We actually have way better evidence. And in fact, if we had the kind of evidence for Jesus that we had for those guys, uh, we would definitely be agreeing here. He and I would be on the same side that Jesus definitely was a historical figure. Uh, for people who want to dive into that, I have a whole series of articles on it online. Uh, but it's also in my book, Jesus from Outer Space. I have a whole chapter on this explaining why that doesn't hold up. Now, uh, to explain why that doesn't hold up, um, we have to remember that, that for these these particular people he mentioned, we have inscriptions. Uh, we have eyewitness texts written that are definitely eyewitness texts, like no question or dispute over the matter. Uh, mainstream scholars agree on all of that stuff. So we, we've got really good evidence for them. We have early historians quoting eyewitness sources, talking, interviewing eyewitness sources, discussing their sources, and so on. So we've got lots of that going on for those other scholars, or for those other historical figures. Um, in the case of Jesus, we don't really have that. So, uh, so let me back up a little bit and explain why, why would we even start to doubt Jesus. I mean, usually 
you know, mundane people who are claimed to exist, we don't have any reason to doubt them in particular. Uh, and that, that's a valid position to take. But the thing is, is that Jesus is a worshiped Savior deity, right? Right out of the gate. From the be- first time we hear about him, he is a worshiped Savior deity who is communicating with people through visions, through revelations from outer space, basically. Uh, and we have this from Paul. Paul's talking about revelations from Jesus. Jesus talks to him from outer space all the time. Um, in that case, and also we have, like, he's highly mythologized in the gospel. So when you, when you see people like that, um, in that time and place, in that era, uh, it was actually commonplace for these kinds of savior lords like Jesus to be mythical, but represented as historical uh, in stories about them, right? So that's uh, the reason why we need evidence that Jesus is an exception to that, that he's actually in a class of people that usually turn out not to have existed. Um, now, that doesn't mean he didn't exist. There could be evidence that makes the him the exception to the rule, right? Uh, so that's when we'd start looking at the evidence. And the fact of the matter is that there actually is no evidence outside the New Testament that we can establish as independent of the Gospels. And this is a fundamental principle in histor- historical methodology, that if you can't establish that a source is independent of another source, it cannot be used to corroborate that source, right? You know, if someone is just quoting someone else, or someone is just getting information from someone else, they're not corroborating that other person. All you have is that other person. So when you look at the, the, all, the ex- all the evidence outside the Bible, um, none of it can be established as independent of the Gospels or Christians citing the Gospels. So you can't establish that any of them had any sort of independent sources about the Gospels. So they can't actually be used as evidence. It's out, uh, out of consideration immediately. So all we have, we go back to the Gospels. Okay, so the Gospels are the first time we have clear reference to Jesus being a historical person, interacting with historical people in the normal way, right? Um, but all the Gospels we know are interdependent. Uh, they're not independent of each other. We know this because, well, three of them quote each other verbatim, extensively, uh, you know, in Greek, by the way. Um, so we know they're copying from each other. And none of them say, none of them name any sources. In fact, none of them state that they have any sources at all. Uh, Luke says he's using written works that precede him uh, that he believes are recording eyewitness testimony, but he doesn't cite any eyewitnesses himself. Uh, he never mentioned having eyewitnesses as a source. And we know Luke's sources are Mark and Matthew, right? Uh, he doesn't name them, but that, that's what he's talking about. So he takes Mark and Matthew and adds some stuff and changes some stuff that we can't establish come from any other source. Um, and that's the problem with the Gospels. And even in John, we could probably get into John, claims to have an unnamed written source, a written source by an unnamed eyewitness. Uh, but that eyewitness doesn't appear anywhere else in the other versions of the stories. And there's a lot of good reason to suspect that that's just a made-up source. And we know uh, ancient authors did this a lot. They would invent sources that didn't exist uh, to give, give authority to their text. So we can't establish that even John had an actual eyewitness. And he doesn't name this eyewitness anyway. Um, and none of, the, none of the Gospels say that they get all of their information from eyewitnesses. Uh, and they're all written in Greek in, as far as we know, a foreign land and a foreign language, right? So, uh, and of course, the mainstream view, and this, I think this debate might turn into just a debate over when, how we date the Gospels, I side with the vast abundance of scholars, including devout Christian scholars, uh, that the New Testament, the Bible, uh, or the Gospel texts were written after the Jewish War, for sure. Luke was written after Josephus, because Luke uses Josephus uh, for some of the material in his book, and so on. We can definitely date them much later. And Paul never references the Gospels. He never talks about any of the stories that are in the Gospels um, in the way that they're in the Gospels. Like occasionally he'll reference things like, uh, you know, Jesus inaugurating the Eucharist, but he doesn't describe it in a way that, that matches uh, what we find in the Gospels. And Paul doesn't reference, he doesn't say there are these Gospels. He doesn't talk about them. He doesn't quote them. Uh, and, 
and that's that's the problem. So we, ha- we the Gospels do clearly appear to post-date Paul, and most mainstream scholars agree about that. So if we're going to debate that issue, I think probably that's what most of this debate will end up being about. Um, but from my perspective, the guy go with the mainstream scholarship that the the Gospels are later, and we can't establish that they were written by eyewitnesses. We can't establish that they had eyewitness sources. So they look just like the same stories we have for all these other non-existent hero gods, all these other favorite gods, also have stories like this told about them um, that also are un- similarly unsourced. So we can't rely on that, because you know, if all non-existent people had these same kinds of stories written about them, Jesus having these same kinds of stories written about him by itself is not adequate evidence. So we go before the Gospels, the earliest evidence we have, which would be the epistles. And in fact, you know, several of these, and this might be something that we'll debate, several of these mainstream scholars agree are forged. Um, you know, Second Peter, for example, is pretty much universally agreed to be a forgery written in the second century, so we can't use that as evidence. Forged evidence isn't evidence, right? Um, James and, and Jude, those epistles, don't ever mention Jesus being a historical person who lived on earth, uh, so they actually can't be used in this case. We look at Paul, there's seven letters of Paul that everybody agrees are authentic. Um, I'd say at least six, but it doesn't matter for this particular debate. Um, and there, there are no explicit references in the letters of Paul uh, to Jesus being a historical person in the normal sense. Uh, and I'll explain what I mean. And that's, that's what we, I think, come down to on this particular case. And people who want to go into this, of course, my latest book, Jesus from Outer Space, is the the quick summary, 200-page summary of my case, but my actual peer-reviewed scholarship is on the historicity of Jesus. That's the big book with all the evidence and all the citations and all of that. So people who want to do a deep dive on this, that's where they should go look. But I'm just going to summarize here the basic principle. Um, any passage you might try to cite from the epistles as maybe implying Jesus was on earth is actually too ambiguous in the original Greek. We can't actually tell that that's what Paul means, and that's, that's a big problem. Whereas, um, no, at no point does Paul explicitly locate Jesus on earth. He never says he died on earth. Uh, he never says, he never mentions anyone seeing Jesus before his death, incidentally. Um, and uh, he only ever refers to revelation and scripture as sources for how anyone learned the teachings of Jesus. And we have this in Romans 16, uh, where he says the, all the, the teaching and gospel of Jesus is learned by revelation and ancient scriptures, not by the apostles or anyone having been eyewitnesses to Jesus. If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, Paul lists the sources for Jesus' death and resurrection, or, uh, sorry, death and burial and so on, uh, as Scripture. If you look at his list of, of the early Christian history, the first time he mentions anyone ever seeing Jesus is after his death, when he appears in Revelations to confirm that he'd risen from the dead. Uh, so even there, there's no ministry of Jesus. We have no mention in Paul of a ministry for Jesus, uh, as ever being a miracle worker or an exorcist. Anytime there's teachings of Jesus, Paul is talking about them coming by revelation, not by people actually being there. Even in Romans 10, he mentions that the only way the Jews could have learned about Jesus and his teachings is through the apostles, which means that Jesus, in this, the author of Romans, as far as he knew, Jesus never preached to the Jews. There was never a Jesus walking around preaching to the Jews. Only the apostles heard Jesus, which means he's talking about the revelation. Uh, People who had revelations of Jesus were the ones who declared themselves apostles. So if you had a revelation of Jesus, then that's your source of information about Jesus, what happened to Jesus, what he did, what his teachings were, and so on. So if you look at these kinds of passages, uh, and even like you look at Philippians 2, where you have another creedal description where it mentions Jesus being a pre-existent divine being who comes down, assumes a body of flesh, and then is killed and then rises again. 
even there, there's no mention of Jesus doing any of this on earth, right? Or, or anyone seeing it, there's no mention of a ministry for Jesus. Uh, there's no, Paul never references any events in Jesus' life as an a, analogy to learn by or, or a lesson to teach from or anything like that. So when you add all this stuff together, uh, it looks deeply, suspiciously like the original Christians, as far as Paul knew in Paul's day, and this would be the 50s AD, so we're talking the 30s to the 50s AD. But Paul's writing in the 50s, he converted in the 30s, uh, so over the, his whole life, 20 years plus, uh, the only thing he knows about are Jesus being known through revelations, dr- meaning dreams and visions. That's the only way anyone ever met Jesus. There's no historical Jesus in our sense. Now, of course, Paul thinks of a historical Jesus in the angelic sense, of course. He thinks these visions and dreams are of a real person. But, but he's not talking about the Jesus walking around Galilee. We don't hear anything about a Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus walking around Galilee, Jesus being killed by Romans, Jesus preaching to the Jews. We don't hear any of that until after Paul has finished all his writing, so as far as you know, after Paul is dead, and then we get the Gospels, and then suddenly, whether it's the Gospel of Matthew or Mark, it doesn't matter, all the other Gospels copy from and get their information from the first Gospel that was written, and then just expand and embellish on that. So we don't really have solid evidence that Jesus existed any more than any of the other non-existent people from non-existent Savior gods that also had these kinds of historicizing stories told about them. Um, And that's the basic case uh, that I make. Now, obviously, there's lots of things you could poke at and, and question and stuff, so we'll probably get into that in the discussion, but how much more time do I have in my 10? You have a minute and 30 seconds. All right, you know what? I'll just end there, and then um, we'll get into other things as we go. You bet. We'll kick it into open dialogue. So, thanks so much, gentlemen, and the floor is all yours for that open discussion. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, do you want to go first, or, or I can go first either way, though, I guess, to kind of just, like, ask questions? Oh, um, I mean, if obviously I would get started with, uh, I don't really have a question. I, I would just say, like, um, when you said the Gospels should be really early dated, like, super early dated, um, I, I, there's almost no mainstream scholar today that would do that, um, you say that the, there are circular arguments for these datings. I don't think I don't think they're really circular arguments. Um, I think what you're talking about is you have your presuppositions. Your presupposition is that Jesus has miraculous powers and therefore could have predicted the fall of Jerusalem, for example. Um, whereas mainstream scholars start with the assumption that usually when you find miraculous tales in a, in a book, they aren't true. Uh, and so usually when you find these kinds of uh, predictions being represented, they represent the text being written after the fact. Uh, so, and I think if you start from if you start from no presupposition, where you, you're not sure whether this could happen or not, then you actually you, you could say that we can't say for sure. Um, but the fact of the matter is that most scholars agree that it's highly unlikely that there was actually a guy who predicted the fall of Jerusalem in this detail, especially as we see in, in Luke. Um, but that, that's not the only argument that we have, right? We have the fact that Paul seems to have no connection with the, the Gospels. There's nothing in Paul that connects to the Gospels in a way that suggests that those Gospels are circulating or even known to him at the time, or that there are any controversies existing that would be based on those Gospels in his day. The Gospels very clearly seem to co-state Paul. Um, and we have other examples. Uh, Luke, for instance, there's a lot of evidence that he relied on Josephus, in particular the Antiquities, which we know is dated to 93, because Josephus tells us when he published it was 93 A.D., 
I mean, we convert it to our date, 93 AD. Um, and so Luke postdates that, right? So we have, scholars have a lot more that they base this, this information and this conclusion on, whereas there isn't any evidence uh, that they date earlier. Like if you cite, you know, 100 years later, these other guys like Irenaeus, who cite no sources for their information. So that we have no, I mean, they have, of course they believe the Gospels are written early, but they have no sources for that. So they, we have no way to believe or trust that they have any reliable information as to when these Gospels are written. So we can't use that evidence, really. So we're stuck not knowing the dates of the Gospels. And so on balance of evidence, I think it looks like they're written after Paul because of the disconnect between Paul and the Gospels. So what is your take on all of that? Yeah, so I would say a couple things. Um, so first and foremost, uh, I think that... Um, you know, there is uh, multiple arguments, of course, I know, put forward for, you know, things like mark and priority and late dates of the Gospels and, and not, you know, giving traditional names and things like that. Um, but I find that all of them are either presuppositional or circular in a lot of ways. Um, like and the two I had given the example of. So, for example, the one that I think is, is circular in a way is so people will say, we know that there is this evolution of high Christology, because if you go from the earliest Gospel mark and work your way up, then that's going to bring you to an, an evolution. It's like, okay, but how do you know Mark is the earliest? Well, because we have an evolution of high Christology, right? And it's like, okay, well, then that you don't actually know because you're setting one up on a, upon a something else that's also not proven. Um, when it comes to things like the prophetic thing. Argument. Sorry, go ahead. Uh, I think it's predating Mark. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that, that, that one I agree is that, that's not a good argument for dating, but that, it's the other arguments that we're usually using. Uh, the scholars, mainstream scholars, are using for the Gospels. Well, and even some of those other arguments, so the one about uh, predictions, first off, I would just point out, uh, frankly, that I don't actually need Jesus to be divine in order to have a detailed and accurate prediction, just simply because such a thing, I mean, considering the existence of people like zealots and stuff like that, it's not impossible that Jesus could have predicted that just as a regular man. Of course, I don't believe that, but I'm just saying, even as somebody who wouldn't, be, who didn't believe the divinity, I don't even actually need that requirement. But as somebody who does believe in his divinity, you know, I, I think that that there's absolutely no problem for me with that. And even though they are, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, even though both sides of that do come down to a certain presupposition in a sense, because you know, you either presuppose miracles are not possible because of some level of naturalism or presuppose that Jesus is who he said he was, and therefore it is possible, or at least that he could be. Um, you know, obviously that's going to determine a lot of, you know, where you would place that argument, but I obviously would take the argument that I think it's at least possible, and of course I think that he was. Um, but, you know, even if I were a skeptical person, it'd be like a skeptical person who believes in metaphysical stuff and supernatural and stuff like that. Uh, other things I would say about that as well are, if you look at, you know, the history as we have laid out, now, of course, to a certain extent, we don't know, you know, some of the sources that people had, although in you know other instances, they do reference these sources. Like, for example, Eusebius does talk about uh, the words of Papias, um, you know, and so on and so forth. Uh, Irenaeus talks about his succession of apostles, which is relatively likely considering the fact that now, and of course, this doesn't mean that he's going to get a perfect representation of what happened, right? Obviously, we know that people are going to have their flaws. But if Irenaeus is truly learning from Polycarp and Polycarp is truly learning from John, well, then there is a succession there of, you know, the, the traditions that you're getting. Um, it's an oral tradition, but it is a succession nonetheless. And there may even be a written tradition behind it. Nobody necessarily knows in that sense. Although I think most people would agree there's at least some level. Uh, obviously, Irenaeus references all four of the Gospels. So he does have, you know, he does have the, um, 
written uh, record in that sense as well. Um, and all of these people are unanimous in Matthew comes first, Mark comes second. Some people do claim about the time of the 300s, 400s that it's, it's possible that Luke might have come second. Uh, everybody agrees John came last. Um, and, and there has to be a reason for that, right? Because, and of course, we know what some of the reasons are because these people listed. Like I said, in some instances, it's because of succession of oral tradition. In some instances, it's because of the records they had from people living 200 years before them, like Eusebius quoting Papias. But it's not like these people just made it up. Well, I think these, this was actually written by Matthew. And, you know, it's important to note in the manuscript evidence, we don't actually have, not only do we not have any of these gospels attributed to somebody else, but we actually don't even have any anonymous gospels. Every gospel we have that has the relevant portions, namely the beginning where it would say the gospel according to, does include the names that we attribute to them. Um, now, granted, they aren't the oldest that we have in the world, um, but the, you know, it does show that there's, there hasn't actually been debate about this for quite some time. Uh, if we look at, just to give you a, an example of you know, what these different people paint for us. So Eusebius gives us what would translate to our modern Gregorian calendar is about 41 AD roughly eight years after the crucifixion, which he would put it around 33 AD. Uh, this lines up perfectly with what Irenaeus says, despite the fact that other things Eusebius and Irenaeus say might conflict with each other, because Irenaeus says that this book was written during the time that Paul and um, Peter would have been in Rome, founding the church in Rome, which has to happen before 49, because that's when the Jews are banished from Rome. It can happen after 56, but that doesn't line up with the writing of Paul's writing for uh, Romans to an already existing church. That would imply Matthew and also Mark, uh, you know, being before the year 49, which lines up perfectly, like I said, with what Eusebius has. Papias seems to include these two as the earliest two. Uh, the last thing I would say is Timothy, which I do believe was written by Paul, does seem to reference Luke directly. Um, I do have the verse here, uh, but uh, go ahead and speak. Get to that. Um, so, uh, and just to remind everyone who maybe the audience doesn't know, but the, another thing that the mainstream consensus holds is that Timothy was not written by Paul. It's, it's a forgery, um, and that's based on linguistic, stylistic analysis. It's written in a completely different style of Greek, um, and uh, as, as all the pastorals are, so Timothy and Titus and so on. Um, they're actually more in the style of Luke. Uh, so some, some scholars have actually suggested that maybe Luke or someone from the Lucan school wrote it. I'm not convinced by that. But it is definitely the case that Paul didn't write them because they're not in Pauline style at all. It's someone pretending to be Paul. Uh, and that's why he, those letters aren't included in the seven authentic letters that I was referencing earlier. But let me, let me back up to what you were talking about before, the, this oral tradition that you're referencing. Um, there's actually no evidence that, that this oral tradition came from any reliable source. This is the problem, right? Uh, we have, for example, Papias is one of the earliest uh, fragments that we can extract from this. And what he describes about uh, the oral traditions surrounding the Gospels, first of all, he doesn't even know about Luke or John, so that suggests Papias might be writing before Luke and John, and Papias is dated early 2nd century, so that would put John, John and Luke really late. Um, but he does mention Mark and Matthew, but everything he says about them is wrong, right? Uh, he, thinks, he thinks Matthew was written in Hebrew. It's not. It's written in Greek. Uh, he thinks Mark is written out of chronological order. It's not. Uh, so... Um, so it, it, there's a lot of things that, that are clearly Papias is just following rumors, things people said. He's not like doing any research to find out that those rumors are true, right? And this is the problem. Then you get this telephone game. So then it gets to Irenaeus. He starts adding stuff. But Polycarp probably added some stuff. So they keep making these conjectures, these rumors build and build and build. And we just can't establish that any of these rumors are true. And they only appear late. They're unsourced. Uh, that no one says where they're getting this information or why it's reliable. 
Um, so that's why historians don't trust any of that stuff. Um, it, it's, there's too many things like that. Um, I have a whole section in uh, Historicity of Jesus in Chapter 5, uh, Element 44, where I, one of the principles I put there is that forgery and faking evidence was the normal mode of Christian production of literature at the time. And I, I mean that in the sense that when you collect all Christian literature, most of it is forgery and fake. Um, so, like, there's, we know that there are some 40 Gospels. So even if you believe there are four authentic Gospels, that means over 80% of all Gospels that Christians wrote were fake. Uh, there are some six or so acts. Um, that means even if you believe the one act is an authentic one, the majority of books of acts were fake. Um, there's the vast majority of epistles. There's a ton of, ton of forged epistles outside the Bible as well as inside, but especially outside the Bible. The Christians were faking stuff all the time. They were meddling with stuff, doctoring, doctoring with stuff. There are all kinds of wild, absurd oral legends uh, about how Judas swelled to the size of a wagon trail and exploded. Uh, so there's a lot of this stuff um, that when we look at what the normal mode of production of ideas and information in Christendom at this time, we are deeply skeptical of anything we hear from them, uh, right? So we need something better than just saying, well, I heard this rumor that. Like, we need better stuff than that because we don't trust Christian sources because there's so much production of, of fakery and forgery uh, and invention of evidence in the early Christian tradition. So th this is another reason why the mainstream consensus is where it is because uh, they're looking at the evidence and they, they, they're deeply suspicious of it. Uh, and they, they have a right to be deeply suspicious of it. And so when you are deeply suspicious of the evidence, you need something better than people citing rumors that are unsourced, right? So that, that's the reason why we don't really go for that. Um, and even the succession claims are don't tell us anything about, even if they're true, now we know that actually schools at the time invented succession lists all the time, so inventing succession lists was normal, even outside Christianity. Um, and these succession lists are unsourced. But we don't know, we don't get to talk to any of those people in the succession line, right? So we don't actually get to see what they were teaching when they were alive, right? Or what they thought was true, or what they thought about the Gospels when the Gospels finally came out, and so on. So that, so that doesn't help us um, reconstruct whether Jesus existed or not. Um, and to go all the way back to your first point, I, I do think, yeah, that it does fundamentally come to, like, you have a bit of a circular argument going in the sense that you want to trust the Gospels with regard to Jesus being supernatural, and then you use that premise to argue that the Gospels must be early because Jesus could supernaturally predict, uh, you know, the, the, um, the fall of Jerusalem. Now, granted, you say that maybe he could have done it uh, without supernatural power, but possibly doesn't get us to probably. That's, that's the usual thing. And when we look at, like, Luke, Luke is writing in such detail, the predictions are in such detail, um, that it's generally not believed that, that, he, that Luke is writing with anything else but knowledge of Josephus' account of the fall of Jerusalem, right? That's, that's how mainstream scholars are looking at all of this stuff. Um, and, and it isn't just like we just presuppose these things, right? We need to, and I think this actually is the difference between arguing or debating the historicity of Jesus with a, a fundamentalist Christian and debating it with a secular historian who also thinks Jesus existed but wasn't supernatural, is that we are starting from a very different conclusion about the broader evidence of the world, which is whether metaphysical naturalism, some sort of ontological naturalism governs the world, whether miracles actually happen or not, um, whether there are supermen or not, right? Uh, and that's not a presupposition. There, there's the mainstream view that there, that's not the case, that there aren't miracles and, and supernatural explanations tend not to be true. Um, the reason we hold that position, the reason mainstream historians hold that position, is because of the vast history of evidence from the sciences and from history 
and journalism and so on, establish that those things definitely do not match what actually happens in the world, whereas we have tons of evidence that those things get made up, right? So we, we know for a fact that stuff gets made up all the time. We have no evidence that it really occurs. So the probability when we see that in a text, the probability that it is another case of being made up versus like there's many miracle accounts in uh, the ancient world outside Christianity as well, Jewish, pagan, and so on. We don't believe those either. Um, and it's based on it's based on a sound conclusion from the evidence regarding what is probable. And to overcome that, we would need much better evidence than we have to say that, again, Jesus is the exception, that his miracle stories are true, but all the other miracle stories of all the other miraculous people in the ancient world are not. Um, that requires a lot more evidence than we actually have to establish. So it's much, much harder to establish a supernatural Jesus than just a mundane guy who got exaggerated later. But I think even, even that mundane guy, it, it's really hard to establish any conclusive evidence that he existed either. Um, it's not impossible. I mean, it's, I come out with a conclusion in my book on the historicity of Jesus that the best probability is one in three that there was a historical Jesus, which is a respectable probability. It's, you know, I don't think it's like certain that he didn't exist, but, um, but I think it, it doesn't even rise to the occasion of really definitively proving that there was a non-supernatural Jesus. You're, you're, the task set before you is vastly harder if you're going to start with the supernatural Jesus. Well, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. I don't actually think that that's so. And I, I think there's a lot of instances in, in modern uh, religions and, and sects of Christianity and sects of other religions and so on that actually kind of prove that. Uh, just to give an example that I know everybody would agree on, you know, I, I think that everybody here is not Mormon. Therefore, we believe Joseph Smith was not a prophet and that, you know, miracles attributed to him and so on would, did not actually occur. Um, and yet that doesn't actually have any bearing on, you know, the things that he did actually write or the fact that he did exist and things of, of that nature. And in fact, he's actually, despite the fact that he did exist and throughout his life was a relatively mundane occurrence, um, does end up having a relatively big impact and a lot of stories told about him, including a lot of uh, legends that some Mormon sects believe, but some don't. And to be fair, the mainstream LDS church doesn't believe these for the most part because they tend not to be accurate. For example, the white horse prophecy, right? The white horse prophecy is this prophecy that the constitution is going to hang by the th by a thread, <clears throat> excuse me. And because of that, you know, there's going to be a flock of people into Mormon territory and the Mormons are going to save the constitution and, you know, save the day and everybody sings kumbaya. And of course I'm paraphrasing it a little bit. Um, but the point is, you know, the Mormon church recognizes that there's virtually no evidence at all that Joseph Smith actually said that. And so as a result, though, a lot of Mormons do buy into that, though it comes up every time Mitt Romney does something in politics or some other politician who happens to have a Mormon persuasion of faith, um, the LDS church agrees because there's solid evidence behind it that that did not occur and that cannot be attributed to Joseph Smith. And so there we have a perfect example, right, of somebody who has miracles attributed to him that still has, you know, texts and, and followers that we are able to trust because they there is a certain level of tradition that is able to be backed up while also seeing some extrapolation on that and something that is added in the, you know, newspapers, right? Like we have really extensively good documentation for early Mormonism. Uh, if if we would you wouldn't be able to make any of that statement that you were saying now if the state of evidence for Mormonism were the same as for Christianity, well, but two thousand years from now it probably would be. Well, no, because it, like all the stuff that we have that we could show that prove that Joseph Smith was a was basically you know a con artist, 
all of that documentation, it's tons of documentation, eyewitness testimonies, uh, state and court documents and newspapers and everything, none of that exists for early Christianity. So we, we actually can't run those kinds of tasks on early Christianity. Christianity, I mean, and that's not Christianity's fault. It's, you know, the ancient world, like a lot of evidence is lost, right? It's nowhere near as well attested as the early 19th century. Um, so that's, there's a huge difference in evidence base there. If we had the evidence for Jesus that we have for Joseph Smith, that would be a no-brainer for the historicity of Jesus. It's just, well, to, be, to be that's, fair, that's, though, we have all that evidence 150 years after Joseph Smith, right, which is about the same time that, you know, people like Irenaeus and et cetera would be writing about Jesus. Um, it, it, even if they did actually, no, sorry. No. So Irenaeus says, well, there's this court document or, you know, or this newspaper that was published. I went to the library and checked the newspaper from 1880 or whatever, 1830 or whatever. Um, you're like, like, they don't do that, right? Like, so, whereas now I can do that. I could literally go look at newspaper, the actual things, the actual newspapers. I can look at photographs of the actual newspapers from that time. I can look at like the actual original documents or photographs of the actual original documents. I can do that. They couldn't do that back then. And they, they don't mention doing that, anything comparable or analogous to doing that back then. Well, Irenaeus himself doesn't. But so much better and so much better preserved than it was then. Uh, and, and that creates a huge uh, epistemic gap for us is the problem. Well, and Irenaeus himself doesn't I'd say that he has that directly, That to be fair, right? However, there are other people who, who do. For example, uh, Justin Martyr talks about having the memoirs of the apostles, um, uh, Tertullian talks about, I mean, Tertullian goes as far as to reference, you know, like official, do, um, official, uh, w decrees and stuff like that. Um, and, and of course, you know, people will d uh, dispute the, sorry, every time that you speak, it looks like I can't actually hear you. And then I apologize for that. I don't mean to talk over you. Yeah, I'm sorry. It's a delay. Um, yeah, no. Uh, okay. So gosh, there's a lot there. Um, so I just had a really good written debate online with Jonathan Sheffield, uh, who's Episcopalian scholar, uh, Anglican I know well. scholar. And uh, that debate, I've had two debates with him. They're really good online. But the, the one, uh, let's see, what was the, the last one was, well, one of them was on the wrong ending of Mark, whether that was authentic. And then, um, and then there was another one that we did uh, on a similar point on whether the Romans could disprove the resurrection. And this question of the acts of Pilate comes up, the question of government documents and stuff. And we're not going to have time to go into that here, but, I, but we, Jonathan and I go into it in detail in that debate. So that's on my website. So people can go there and look for Jonathan Sheffield and then find uh, our debate and our discussion of this. But the acts of Pilate is another example of a Christian forgery. It wasn't a state document. There actually is no evidence that there were any state documents that could confirm anything in Christianity. Justin, you mentioned the, he cites the memoirs of the apostles. He means the Gospels, and in fact, he means the Protoevangelion of James, which is a, a, a you know non-canonical gospel that is based on the Gospel of Luke. It takes Luke and expands on the Gospel of Luke, and we know that because he says that Jesus is that the memoirs say that Jesus is born in a cave. None of the Gospels in the Bible say Jesus is born in a cave, but the Protoevangelion of James does. Uh, so we know that when he says the memoirs of the apostles. He gullibly thinks that the Protoevangelion of James, this late, late derivative made-up gospel, was actually written by James, right? It totally was not. It was just someone claiming that it was written by James. Uh, and that, that's why we, we find all of this evidence, like, super deeply suspicious, uh, and, and that we can't really rest reliance on that. Um, to change the subject slightly, though, you'd mentioned Joseph Smith, and I should mention this. 
so that people understand where I'm coming from, is that I think Joseph Smith is not a good analogy for Jesus. Joseph Smith would be an analogy for Peter, right? Because Joseph Smith has the angel Moroni is revealed to Joseph Smith, and he gives all the teachings. And Moroni is actually the savior figure in this, this model. He's the one who inaugurates the Mormon religion, who, who teaches uh, everything to Joseph Smith and gets Mormonism started. Joseph Smith is just his prophet, right? Um, that's what Paul is saying he is with respect to Jesus, and seems to say that that's what Peter is with respect to Jesus. So Peter and Paul, you know, they had revelations of Jesus. So Jesus is actually Moroni, the angel Moroni. He's analogous to the angel Moroni in this model. So if you're going to ask, like, what is the evidence that the angel Moroni is an actual historical person, now you're closer to an actual situation similar to early Christianity. How would we establish that the angel Moroni was historical? And if Jesus was just like the angel Moroni, how would we establish that? Uh, and the only thing that's different between the two is that in the ancient world, it was typical to take these hero figures and put them in history and give them a story. And that didn't happen to Moroni because that, that's a different model in the modern American landscape. Uh, so that didn't happen to Moroni. But uh, that's, the, that's the analogy there. So we, you look at Joseph Smith and you look at Peter and Paul, we have poor evidence for Peter and Paul, but we have better evidence for them uh, than we have for Jesus. Um, and that, the, the reason we have crappy evidence for them is, again, it has to do with the poor preservation of evidence from the ancient world, uh, whereas the evidence for Joseph Smith is vast because the evidence preservation in the modern era is so much better. Um, but I just want to make that point because if people want to understand how this could happen to Christianity, I'm saying, and, and other scholars have agreed, uh, not everybody, and we're a small minority in the movement, but um, that, re that the religion started this way, that, that Jesus was like Moroni. He was an angel who revealed himself to these apostles. They went around spreading the news that, that he'd undergone this death and resurrection. Uh, and then, you know, a lot, what was back then, a lifetime later, people started putting these, this, this took this hero and put him in earth history and gave him interactions with historical figures and stuff, just had been done with other savior figures, right? Uh, that's the model. And then, of course, eventually, after about 100 years more, the, the original version of the religion kind of just died away or was suppressed. And you had this certain sect of Christians that started pushing the narrative that the historical Jesus, the earthly Jesus, was the real one, and arguing against the, the ones who are claiming uh, that there was a mythical one. We see this in Second Peter. It was forged to attack these Christians who were claiming that gospel stories were merely myths. Um, and uh, so, but we don't get to read the writings of any of those other Christian groups. You only see the polemics on this side of the, the historicizing Christian. And so that's the model that I think fits the evidence better. Um, but of course, we're not going to resolve that in this debate today. But I just wanted to make it clear that so everybody understands what it is that I'm actually proposing as the case. Well, and to be fair, I think that that does kind of, you know, in a sense, it does kind of presuppose the idea we have here of a celestial Jesus. Because, I mean, first off, I do believe that Paul certainly does uh, portray a Jesus who has to be earthly. Otherwise, what he's talking about doesn't make any sense. And I, and I would argue. That even is, if, even if you restrict that to the seven, um, just to give an example of that, um, you know, when he says born of a woman, born under the law. Well, first off, being born of a woman, you know, you, I know you'd have argued before well, that the word he uses is kind of the same word that he uses for Adam. Well, not only is Adam portrayed in Genesis as a physical person who's actually living, not a spiritual being, but on top of that, if you're created or made of a woman, then that's really no different than saying you're born of a woman. So the, the change of terminology doesn't actually make a difference. And furthermore, when he says made under the law, that actually is a much stronger indication 
of Jesus being a fleshly being than saying born of a woman, because if you're born under the law, according to the Jewish understanding, I mean, uh, just to give it, you know, the, sorry, go ahead. From Galatians three to four, that Paul ends by explaining that the women he's talking about are Hagar and Sarah, allegorical women. He said, this is an allegory. Being born of a woman is an allegory for being born into different world orders. If you're born to the world of flesh under the law, you're born to Hagar. Uh, and you get reborn by Sarah when you're resurrected into new life, right? Um, so when you look at the context, when Paul says Jesus is born of a woman under the law, and then immediately says, oh, I'm talking about allegorical women, um, he doesn't immediately say it, but it's in the context of the argument, the flow of the argument. And I have an article on this if people want to see that. Uh, on Galatians is definitely allegorical. Uh, you can check that out on my, on my website if you want to go into this in depth. But this is what I mean by in context is very... It's ambiguous now, right? So now we're not sure that he means, let's say, Mary or some actual physical woman. There are other reasons why that, that's weird. Like, there's no particular reason for him to mention the physical birth uh, of, a, of a woman. Like, there, there isn't any reason for him to do that. But um, the point being is also when he says born, you mentioned that he uses the vocabulary. Uh, it's, he uses the word that means a manufactured body. And yes, of course, he believes Adam was a real person. He believes Satan is a real person. He believes Jesus is a real person. He believes Jesus really did assume a body of flesh somewhere. He just doesn't tell us where that happened uh, or how he knows that, other than he says, the way I know this is by revelation and scripture, right? Those are the only sources of information uh, he says he has or claims to have. Um, and so the, the issue is that when he uses that word, when he, a few lines later, he talks about our births, he uses the word that he prefers for human birth, actual being begotten by a woman. But when he uses that of Jesus, he uses this word of manufacture, divine manufacture, of Adam's body and our future resurrection bodies. The same word is used in Paul to refer to those, which are also not literally born. They might be allegorically born of Sarah in, this, in the context of Paul's argument, but they're not literally born of an actual human woman. So the fact that Paul uses this weird vocabulary, even Christians were bothered by this. So we have early Middle Ages, Christians frantically tried to alter the text by erasing the, the word, the troubling word of manufacture that, that means uh, come to be in the sense of a manufactured body and tried to put in Paul's word for human birth in both places, in, in both Galatians and Romans, by the way. Um, and now this, this, this attempt to meddle didn't work. Uh, it didn't prevail over the manuscript tradition. But we have evidence of them attempting to do it. Uh, and this is in uh, Bart Ehrman's Orthodox Corruption of Scripture. Uh, and you can find an extensive discussion of it there. Um, so this, this shows, like, even, or even early Christians were bothered by Paul's vocabulary. But these are Christians who are, who are asking centuries later who are convinced of the historical Jesus and then are actually worried about uh, the fact that Paul's letters don't really effectively argue for that. So they tried to alter them to do it. Uh, but that means they understood what I'm pointing out is that Paul's vocabulary is weird and looks like he's talking about something else than we think. Uh, and, and that's the only kind of passage you can find in Paul. There's no clear, explicit discussion of Jesus actually existing on earth and interacting with earth, having a ministry, doing any of those things. And there's lots of places in Paul where we would expect something like that, where him to use, oh, remember when Jesus did this, or remember when uh, this, this woman touched Jesus, and so on. There's a lot of ways where he could actually use stories about Jesus' life, um, or people could throw those stories at him that he has to argue against, right? That never comes up in the letters of Paul, and that's really weird, and that's one of the reasons why uh, I and a few other scholars are starting to doubt uh, that there ever really was a Jesus. Well, and I, I would certainly have a lot to say, you know, on a, on a lot of different things there. So the first thing I would say is the, the um, Hagar and Sarah 
um, split that Paul talks about in Galatians 4 is not the same thing as when he says that uh, Jesus is born under a woman. If we read Galatians 4 in its full and proper context, he is specifying that in the fullness of time, meaning when all of the prophecies and the law of the prophets had come to pass, right? Jesus says himself that um, I have not come to, uh, you know, to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, right? So in this fullness of time where he's supposed to be the, the fruition of all of these different um, prophecies and hopes for the future in the Old Testament, right? We get Jesus. And once again, I'd like to point out, not only is born of a woman, because you can say, re replace the word born with made or formed of. Formed of a woman says the same thing. It communicates the same thing. So some people might have had a problem with that in the Middle Ages. That's fine that they did. I don't understand that, right? I think that that, and I think most people would because most people did. If we look at the overwhelming, not only common uh, laity, right, but also the scholars all throughout history, right? The overwhelming majority of people have interpreted this the same way. Um, there's a reason for that, I believe. I'm not saying that necessarily means anything, but I do think there is a reason for that because that is the plain understanding of it. Even if you change the terminology to say formed of a woman or um, molded of a woman or something along those lines. But also the thing that he says after that is much actually much more important in this particular context. When you say under the law in a Jewish context, the angels are not under the law, right? Celestial beings are not under the law in the sense that we are under the law. In fact, one could seriously argue that nobody but Israelites are under the law. Um, so not only, sorry, go ahead. Why, that's why Jesus had to assume a body of flesh so that he could be born under the law, right? Um, so that's what right, so then he's no longer about. a celestial Jesus, though, right? When you assume a body of flesh, you are born to Hagar. You are born to a woman, the woman being Hagar. Um, it, it's an allegorical woman. It's not a literal woman. And, and Paul says that. Um, I would recommend, like, you might want to actually read my article on this, um, Galatians Allegorical, uh, on my website, uh, and see what you think about it. Because what I do is I look at the entire argument from beginning to end because you can't just cherry pick a verse out of context you look at the argument from beginning to end it'll start to become clear to you that this is what paul is arguing and he could be arguing this whether jesus really was born of a woman or not that's, that's i'm not saying that this is evidence that jesus didn't exist i'm just saying uh that what paul's doing here is not talking about the birth of jesus literally um so it doesn't give us information about what he thought about the literal birth of jesus uh, and that's that's why it just comes out of the evidence box. It doesn't really help us either way in this debate. And that's the the weird ambiguity of it is what I call attention to as the problem. Um, anyway, that's that's just what I wanted to add on that point. Well, so I guess in you know because I do want to look at some other text. So I guess we'll move on after this question. But I would just want to ask if you would agree that in order for this passage to make sense, Jesus absolutely has to become a flesh being, a flesh human being. Well, then then what? doesn't that defeat the whole celestial? I mean, clearly then Jesus is talking, or excuse me, Paul is referencing in what may actually be his earliest um, letter, right? A, a flesh and blood human being named Jesus, right? Uh, so I guess, yeah, maybe maybe you're not aware of, of what the actual thesis is, um, but this is laid out in On the Historicity of Jesus and, and Jesus from Outer Space. Um, yes, it, what what the if Jesus was if Jesus was killed and resurrected in outer space, um, or it would be below the orbit of the moon, there's a cosmological reason for that. But um, yes, he that's the whole point is he's assuming a body of flesh. In fact, it has to be declared, you know, it has to be Jewish flesh even. Um, so we're not saying that that didn't happen. You know, before that and after that, Jesus was angelic, and you're right, he wouldn't be under the law before that and after that. But Jesus had to assume a body of flesh for that very reason that you point out. 
so that he could be under the law, so that when he died to it, that his his death could atone for all the sins of the world, right? That's that's the whole, the blood magic theory of Christianity requires that to happen. And that's well spelled out in Hebrews 9, for people who want to see what, what is the logic, what was the cosmological logic of this. Um, so yeah, that, that's definitely what Paul and the early Christians believe. The question is, is where do they think that happens, right? Paul never says it happened in Jerusalem or Galilee or wherever. Uh, and he seems vaguely, weirdly um, negligent of all the opportunities to discuss it occurring on Earth, right? Uh, so the question is, even if it occurred on Earth, it, it he doesn't mention it being anywhere that anyone saw, right? Like, uh, let's say it could have been in the Garden of Eden that was located between the Tigris and Euphrates or something. We don't know. He doesn't say, right? So Paul never says where this happens, and he never says anything that would allow us to connect it to any place on Earth that there would be witnesses to, right? Uh, so that's that's the issue. So yes, Jesus definitely, the theory is Jesus definitely assumed a body of flesh. And Paul cites scripture as his source for that. So in, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, you know, Jesus, uh, when he talks about the incarnation and death, um, he doesn't say anyone witnessed that or confirmed it from him while he was alive. Uh, it says, we learn, according to scripture, which is the phrase for sourcing in ancient Greek. So he's, 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 he's citing scripture as a source. And then the first time he gets to eyewitnesses as a source is after all that, when Jesus appears after his resurrection. Um, that's the first time anyone sees and becomes an eyewitness to any of this. Uh, and so that's the weird sequence as well. And so that, that ties back to what I was pointing out is that that's an example of not decisive evidence, but it is curious, bizarre evidence that starts to look like what we're talking about rather than what the usual historicist thesis is. Well, and I think to a certain extent, that's very separated from what I think we could reasonably expect Paul to believe as somebody who, at least by his own uh, reclamation, was a Pharisee of Pharisees and a very Hebraic person. Um, I think if, if we're actually looking at this, you know, from because there's nothing in the Jewish tradition that is going to provide you this idea of, you know, flesh, fleshly celestial beings or beings possibly being born in the lineage of David, but also somehow not on this planet, right? That, and I will admit, you could probably find something like that in certain pagan sources. I'm, I'm sure you could, although I may not be familiar 100% with what that might be. I mean, it does sound very similar to what, you know, the Greek gods are kind of portrayed as, as these sort of like superhumans rather than, than you know, gods in the uh, Abrahamic understanding, right? Um but that, that doesn't seem to be anything that we would have any indication that Paul would believe or the, that the early Christians would believe, right? Um, in fact, I think that when you look at things like descendant of David, that seems to be pretty clear that it has to be somebody who would be born on this earth because David's descendants would be on this earth. Um, and actually, I would point out really quick, um, you know, you brought up 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 is actually a pretty interesting one because first off, 1 Corinthians 15 um, references... Uh, Jesus as being, you know, witnessed by multiple people before he was witnessed by Paul in a resurrected body, which does seem to assume that these people could have, I mean, because you can't verify a resurrected body of a celestial being if you never saw that the being that actually came down in the flesh and then was killed. But more important than that, there's certain things like, for example, he points out Cephas and James implying they have some sort of importance. Well, why? Well, James is called the brother of Jesus and Cephas is Peter. Uh, he uses the phrase the 12. The 12 seems to imply not only that the 12 disciples exist, it seems to be a reference to the 12 disciples, but it also seems to imply that everybody actually knows who these disciples are because he doesn't extrapolate on who the 12 are. He just says the 12 and assumes everybody's going to know what that means, which in my opinion seems to indicate, if not the Gospels, 
than at least some level of what the Gospels portrayed, which is the story of Jesus, because that's where you get that information. Paul doesn't ever tell us about the 12 disciples or list their names or anything along those lines, nor does he actually tell us the importance of Peter, other than that he's a pillar of the church, which he references in passing. Um, sorry, I couldn't tell you, were you wanting to respond there? Uh, Paul never refers to disciples. He has no knowledge of the word uh, relating to Christianity. He doesn't call the 12 disciples. And in, in that passage in 1 Corinthians, he seems to think the 12 are separate from Peter, right? It appears to Peter and then the 12. It appears like Peter is something separate from the 12. And then the sequence of appearances that, that continue there do not line up with any gospel. This is an example of what I mean. Like, Paul does not seem to even be aware of the gospel appearance narratives at all. Uh, his, his account doesn't match up with them in any way. Um, and, yeah, he's, he very explicitly says that these are revelations, not of flesh and blood. Uh, the revelations occur inside you. You feel it and experience the, the Jesus inside you. Um, he says these things. So so we don't really have, I mean, of course, they believed that there was a bodily Jesus visiting them uh, because that was the dogma and the thing they believed about angelic figures is the thing they believed about uh, divine beings and the things they believed about resurrection in general. That doesn't mean that they, like, scientifically confirm this in any way. Like, they, you know, if Jesus appears to them, I am resurrected. Oh, okay, so he must have had a body, he must have had a supernatural body, and so on. When you look at Paul, when he argues in the rest of 1 Corinthians 15, argues very vehemently for Jesus having this new supernatural indestructible body, all his arguments are based on ideological conjecture, right? At no point does he cite evidence. Well, you know, Peter tried to hit him with a hammer and it didn't do anything. You know, there's no, or, or uh, Thomas touched the wounds or any of that stuff. There's no reference to actual eyewitness evidence to base their belief that this Jesus had a body. It's all based, this belief is based entirely out of an ideological set of presuppositions. Um, and so that tells you what we're talking about here. That, that's why it's not evidence that Jesus really existed. Yes, I'm, they probably may have had visions or dreams in which Jesus, they think, appeared to them and talked to them and so on. Or they may have, they may have claimed it and it didn't happen. But even if it really did, we know that happens naturally. We have extensive scientific evidence of uh, and also historical evidence of people believing that when gods visit them in their dreams, that those are real gods and those gods have bodies and so on. Uh, and, and same with visions and, and hallucinations and things like that. But I want to go back to the descendant of David thing. This is an example of what I was talking about. Yes, a lot of Bible translations have that, but that's not in the Greek. At no point does Paul ever say Jesus is descended from David. Jesus, or Paul says Paul, uh, Jesus is manufactured out of the semen of David, directly, right? He doesn't say that it's a descent. He doesn't say, like, it came from Joseph who descended from David. He doesn't say descent at all. He says it, he basically seems to say that Jesus was directly manufactured out of the semen of David, um, which I think if you're going to read it literally, I think Paul means that literally. I, and, and if he doesn't mean it literally, it's just as likely he means it allegorically, just like he means that we are the seed of Abraham um, when we're not, like, right? So, like, even Gentiles are called the seed of Abraham because of a spiritual meaning of that. It's not a literal biological meaning of it. So if he can say that, he could say uh, there could be some sort of allegorical way that Jesus is of the seed of David. Um, either one, the problem is, is that Paul doesn't say, right? So we don't know which of these things it is. Uh, is this an obscure roundabout way to refer to descent uh, in the normal biological way? Maybe, but we don't know. Paul doesn't say. And that, that's the problem. Is that we don't know. It's so obscure and weird the way Paul is saying this. We don't know what he means, and so we can't actually affirm that he means the thing that we want him to mean, right? Uh, and that, that's the problem with this, and I think we, we kind of have no way to prove one supposition over another, so we're at a deadlock. We just can't use the evidence because we don't know how to interpret it. Um, 
And that, that's the kind of talking about um, where the text, when you look at the Greek, doesn't look like what historicists presuppose today. So, well, see, I think there's a couple things to be mentioned there. I mean, I, I do think first off, just to kind of point out, you know, when he you say that he doesn't call the 12 disciples, I, I think that's actually kind of irrelevant because the 12 is a clear reference to what we would call the disciples. And if it's not, then there has to be some explanation as to what exactly that was. And those disciples are the disciples because they walked with the fleshly Jesus, according to every tradition that we have. In fact, even the early tradition that says that um, there was, you know, that Jesus didn't actually come in the flesh, which was the docetists, right? Which is something that we all knew very well, actually. In fact, First John is believed to be a polemic against docetists. Um, but, you know, even in that case, the docetists did still believe that there was this at least appearance of him being here in the flesh and that the disciples walked with that appearance, right? Um, so that reference presupposes in some way these 12 walking on this planet with a person named Jesus, and, you know, whether or not he's fleshly or you, you could take a docetist position if you like, although docetists don't seem to appear until much later in the tradition. I digress on that, though. The point being, you know, that reference to the 12, regardless of if he calls them disciples or apostles or not, that seems to be something that in the historical record, there's only one group that could possibly refer to. And, and you point out, you know, he says Cephas is different from them. Well, if it's true that Peter is is in some way, you know, a, a chief of the apostles, which I don't, I'm not a Roman Catholic by any stretch, um, but he is said by Paul himself to be at least a chief in some sense, right? He says that uh, James, John, and Peter were pillars of the church, um, which does seem to give it, and that, you know, also that Peter was, given in, uh, into a ministry of, you know, under the Jews. So he does seem to indicate there is definitely a level of status uh, Peter is afforded. So, that, I mean, it, it, you, we really only need an explanation that's that simple. And as far as, you know, saying something about like, well, it's saying, you know, literally of the semen of David. Well, you know, there are certain Gnostic groups that would come much later, second, third century and so on, which may have something to say about, you know, that, that being a thing that's possible. But from the perspective of somebody like Paul, who once again, according to his own admission in text that me and you both agree would be his words, is a Pharisee of Pharisee, right? Um, that's not something that's going to be in his traditions. That's not something, and that would be at least a major assassination of character, it appears. And the frankly, when I hear something like that, the only way I would think you could literally interpret that is as a descendant of David. The only way you could be of the uh, sperm of David, for lack of a better term, is if through his descendants later down the line, you ended up being one of his direct descendants, in this case, one of his direct male descendants. Yeah, not not if it occurred the way that actually Paul says, that God manufactured a body directly out of the semen of David. And, and there's actually the Nathan's prophecy in the Old Testament actually says that God is going to manufacture an eternal son uh, of God from, he says an eternal throne, but there'll be a son who'll sit on an eternal throne um, he's going to directly manufacture it out of the out of the semen from uh, David's belly. Now, that that prophecy was falsified by the fact that the throne wasn't eternal. The throne that resulted actually disappeared for several centuries, or a century at least. And uh, so you can actually look at that and say, like, well, this is a crisis for Judaism. the The throne wasn't eternal. How do you get that prophecy to be true? The obvious way is to say, well, it, that means that there's going to be some other son that God is going to manufacture out of the semen of David, and that son is going to be sit in the eternal throne. And that's Jesus, of course, right? That's, that's, that's how you get this logic. And this is totally in line with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were supernaturalists, unlike the Sadducees, who are anti-supernaturalists. The Pharisees were all into all this kind of stuff. I mean, and 
Paul himself talks about there's uh, our resurrection bodies are empty, like empty shells are waiting for us in heaven to be occupied. Paul uh, got to visit the third heaven uh, and, and visit the Garden of Eden in the third heaven and talk to angels. I mean, there, there's Paul is clearly a supernaturalist. Like he has no problem with these kind of weird cosmic concepts. Uh, so that, that isn't the case. And I do have to correct you on one thing, though, that Paul says he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He rejected Phariseeism for Christianity. Um, so he actually found the more fringe views of Christianity more attractive than Phariseeism. So you really can't cite his Phariseeism necessarily. Um, but even as citing it, they were the supernaturalists among the, the Jewish sects. So they're actually quite in line with what we're talking about. And when you talk about the 12, I want to point out that the Qumran community before Christianity, a century before Christianity, they had a quorum of 12. We have references to it in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, and, and in Dead Sea Scrolls, that show a sect that has teachings very similar to Christianity uh, before Christianity came along. So when, when Paul says he appeared to Peter in the 12, it sounds like we're looking at a sect of Christians led by Peter who had this revelation of Jesus, and then his quorum of 12 had a confirming uh, – they had confirming revelations themselves, and that started the religion. So we, that's just like Mormonism basically, right? You have, you have Joseph Smith, then you have the eyewitnesses, and then you have Brigham Young and so on. It's the same storyline in, in, in many ways, right? Um, that's why it's significant when Paul doesn't say that they're disciples. He didn't say they ever met Jesus. He doesn't say they were handpicked by Jesus. Um, and he says that, that they're just apostles, and apostles are people who have a revelation of Jesus. It sounds like that's the only thing Paul knows about is the disciples. Uh, what, what we mean by disciples, he means people who were apostles who had revelations of the Lord. And so uh, it sounds like that's what Paul's talking about. And when you, 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 don't, you can't connect it to the Gospels except if you presuppose that Paul's talking about what's in the Gospels. But the Gospels, if they're written after, they're deliberately trying to reify what Paul talks about and turn it into a history. So they're actually taking the Council of Twelve and turning it into some a group of people that Jesus handpicks in life. And so you you can't establish that it's the other way around, right? So that, that's the problem is that that we can't use questionable documents to reinterpret the more reliable documents that we have, um, because those questionable documents are trying to push a certain narrative that doesn't appear in the earlier documents. And that that's the problem that I'm looking at when I say that with Paul never mentions disciples. He never calls the twelve disciples. And he never says they're handpicked by Jesus in life. He never says anything like that. Um, now, if he did, like had he done so, then this wouldn't be a debate. Like we would, we would all, we would both agree that Paul's talking about the same guy, at least in some mundane sense, that gets embellished in the Gospels. Well, I mean, I think he presupposes it. I think the fact that he references the twelve in such an offhand way almost presupposes that these people are the people as described in the Gospels. And of course, as I said earlier, I do definitely believe that you know the Gospels have an earlier date. Um, in fact, I would even kind of point out that uh, in a lot of ways, some of this stuff only kind of makes sense if the Gospels have an earlier date. Like for, you know, how does he know exactly? Well, unless, of course, he personally knew them, which, to be fair, he does claim he did. Um, so I guess I'll retract that statement. Uh, but nonetheless, you know what I mean? He, he does certainly seem to have a, not only him, but also everybody who he's speaking to an implicit knowledge of this 12 and their status such that doesn't need an actual explanation. Uh, I would point out that this is a very early um writing in fact most of paul's writings are relatively early all things considered and paul you know it's widely believed paul was born sometime around the year five you can give or take 10 or 15 years i really don't mind the point is paul would be adult and in the area that he needs to be in in order to know that jesus was a popular figure even if he was not a direct eyewitness to jesus 
Uh, and being that he was a Pharisee, which is the group which is accusing Jesus and ended up being one of the chief persecutors afterwards, according to his own admission in one of his earliest works, it does seem relatively likely that even if he was not an eyewitness of Jesus, which I don't think he was, um, that he would certainly be somebody who you know has at least enough knowledge to confirm whether or not this person physically existed. Yeah, I mean, that, that would be a valid point if Paul ever clearly referenced Jesus being a historical person walking around the earth, right? Uh, I agree. Like, if, if that was all we had was Paul talking about, well, I heard these stories from these guys who knew Jesus um, when, when they walked with him in Galilee and so on, then it would be a no-brainer. Yeah, we, we would have – that would definitely count as evidence for the historicity of Jesus, and I think it would be well-established in that case that Jesus existed. The problem is that Paul never does that, right? That's the problem. Yes, he's a contemporary. But that's what's weird. A contemporary should be talking about the historical narrative, the biography and life of Jesus a way a lot more uh, than he does. Uh, and, and that's why I have a doubt. Um, I want to I wanna apologize to you and my host that I'm, I'm a ghost now. <laughs> yeah, it's my, uh, Terrible. And my car light is not adequate to give my – to allow me to appear. <laughs> so I – are we close to Q&A from the audience? We've got about five minutes left, so it might be a, a good time to kind of move into any final thoughts from the open discussion. These are my favorite because I can just enjoy them, and I don't have to be <laughs> pulling my hair out with people, you know, when they're sometimes at their throats. So this has been a really fun discussion to listen to, and so thank you guys for that. And so, yeah, if you have any kind of uh, drawing together the threads from the debate, if you will, that's uh, you're welcome to do that. I feel like I've well, done that. Go ahead, actually. So Jay, no, yeah, I was going to say, Jay, why don't you why don't you thread it for us? What, what's your take on all this so far? Yeah, certainly. Well, I do think um, if it would ever be possible now, I, of course, this would be something in the future, where, but perhaps a slightly more old-school classical version of this might be in order because it does appear there's a lot of topics we bounce back and forth from, and obviously that's, that's expected, right? You wrote a 600-page book on this for a reason. Um, but I recommend we like the Sheffield debate. If you're interested in that, hit me up about that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I actually kept up with that quite a bit, so I'd be, I would certainly be interested, but, um, what I would kind of say, so I would briefly respond kind of to what you were saying in the sense that, you know, yes, it is true that Paul as a contemporary could and should have the information. In fact, that, like I said, that's part of the reason why I think, um, he of all people should know whether or not this is a celestial being or not. Um, but also, I would I would point out that his epistles aren't really for that purpose, right? Um, you know, just to give John as an example. Now, of course, this example does assume that John wrote all the books traditionally ascribed to him. But just, you know, for a moment, we'll, we'll play a thought experiment. If he did write all of those, well, there's no reason for him to necessarily reference certain things in Revelation or in 1st, 2nd, or 3rd John, because those serve a, pur a different purpose than what he's writing in the Gospel of John. We do know from Paul's own admission that we don't have all of his writings. Um, you, there's at least four letters that scholars believe were written to the Corinthians. Of course, we uh, have two of them currently. And, and of course, there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of reason to go into that in, in canonization and things like that that we don't necessarily need to get into now just because it's you know a long topic in and of itself. But um, I would just say that I don't think it's a requirement necessarily for Paul to list out you know, in detail, the entire, in the, excuse me, entire biography of Jesus, um, if that's not necessarily the purpose of his epistles, which for the most part tend to be correction or teaching of doctrine 
or things of that nature. Um, to give kind of a, a, a general idea of what I see in this debate, it does seem to me, and I understand that as a fundamentalist, I am certainly on the outside of the scholarly consensus. However, I, I, would, I would point out somewhat tongue-in-cheek that I might be on equal footing with the mythicist in that regard. Um, that being said, um, I, I do think, you know, a lot of times these sorts of things do seem to, in my opinion, if not presuppose, at least, you know, suppose and not properly explain um, things that I just don't think there's solid evidence for. I mean, I would be open, for example, to uh, Hebrews. I've been, seeing, I've been uh, uh, seeing some evidence that Hebrews could potentially be written by somebody like Barnabas and something like that. I'm open to that, though I disagree. Um, but yeah. when people describe the other six, it seems, you know, like things that, like, for example, you brought up the stylistic differences. Well, I'm a writer, and I could find four or five of my own styles, right, um, easily. I mean, easily. And that's just me writing myself without any sort of a scribe or anything like that. You know what I mean? That, um, true that is, actually. Uh, Stylometrics has found that it's almost impossible to erase your style. Um, because what we look at are markers of uh, frequency of idioms, uh, word length, sentence length, things like this. Uh, particular ways words are used uh, and in conjunction with other words and so on. Um, it, it's almost it's almost impossible to fake someone's actual writing style. Even if you think you you think you've done it, computers can tell you that you haven't. Um, and there's actually and even not computers, you can have just and stylometrics from you know the early 20th century are pretty good at spotting this stuff. Um, so it, it is actually exceedingly difficult to do that, even if you tried. And there isn't any reason Paul would try. Uh, but that's why we think, like, whoever's writing the pastorals is clearly has a different command of Greek, uses words differently, has different frequencies of sentence length and word length and so on, uh, uses idioms differently, uses prepositions differently. When you add all of that up, it's highly unlikely that it's suddenly Paul has, like, you know, had a brain tumor and has completely changed the way he writes. Um, so that, that's why that's why mainstream scholars, I'm talking about mainstream scholars and what they're talking about, and I agree with them. Like, I think it's almost impossible to imagine that, that the Paul who wrote the seven authentics also wrote uh, the, uh, the, the pastorals. Um, and, and, but I want to, yeah, so let's, let's wrap up with that one point uh, about, I, I, I want to clarify that I'm not saying that Paul, we should expect Paul to write the entire biography of Jesus in his letters. That, that's not what we expect. Um, what we expect is that Paul wrote 20,000 words. 20,000 words. That's a lot. Um, and never, ever occasions any of his arguments with an example from Jesus' life. No one used examples or no one asked him questions about Jesus' life and how it might pertain to things or things Jesus said in life. Or uh, he never mentions Jesus handpicking the disciples. He never mentions, uh, it, it, there's just, the problem is that there's an occasion, many occasions where he would mention something from the life of Jesus, and he doesn't. And in 20,000 words, he never does. That's really weird. Uh, and, you know, if you're writing 20,000 words about this guy that you think is amazing, and there's a lot of controversies around, and that you, have to, you want to teach people what he taught and how he lived and stuff like that, and you never talk about how he lived and what he did in life, that's strange. Uh, and that's, that's, I mean, it's not like conclusively strange, but it's strange enough to warrant being doubtful, I think. And that, that's, I think, one of the leading arguments that has led me to the position I'm in. And remember, I say, you know, as much as a one in three chance I'm wrong, like there could be a one in three chance for the historical Jesus um, at best. Uh, but I'm, I'm highly skeptical. And that's, I've, 
I think I've gone over in this debate the, the reasons why, and I think, like you said, like we can't go over everything in this debate. Um, I think the best place would to be for people at this point is to go look at my books, look at anything that you've got on your website, and pursue it from there. I would love to do a debate with you, actually, written debate, Sheffield style, on the dating of the Gospels. I think because that seems to be a very central point, and it is the most uh, divergent point that you make from other people I've debated. Uh, and, and I think I have I know other people would like to see that debate. So if you're interested in that, I would like to do that at some time in the future. Let me know. Yeah, absolutely. I'd be honored. Um, and um, I, I guess so. To kind of let this come to because I know that you were saying we got about five minutes left. So to kind of let this come to a little Less bit than of 60 seconds. Cool. Well, that's a pretty <laughs> solid okay. time. Um, I guess what I would say in, in conclusion on, on, you know, of course, wanting, you know, uh, that sort of a future conversation to take place. Uh, I would say that, you know, there's a lot of things in this conversation that I think are sort of like left on the cutting room floor to, for lack of a better term. But um, in the end, it does seem to me that there is a, at least a major disconnect between, um, you know, the things that I would, and, and that I think the majority of evangelical or fundamentalist believers would say, uh, say and believe and what is being presented from the mythicist perspective. It may be a wise idea for um, people to explore that more and see why, you know, if we can hammer out some conclusions. But nonetheless, uh, I don't want to take up too much time because obviously there's a lot we could say that could delve into more, you know, responses and back and forth. So, I, the, you know, let's go ahead and let this go to the Q&A. And I, by the way, um, just in case I don't get a chance, um, want to thank you very much for having this conversation because it's not only been a very fun and uh, interesting conversation, but also... You know, obviously, your doctor, professor, Richard Carrier, writing this book that happens to be the number one book on this subject and stuff like that. And I'm Jay Cox from YouTube. So, you know, I, I appreciate that, certainly. I think Richard or Dr. Carrier is still with us. And uh, let us know if you are. I know that you might, there's a lot of extra challenges being on the road for this debate. Oh, we still have him in Zoom. I, th I suspect he can hear me. So we will uh, we'll jump into those questions, excited forum. And so, yes, thanks so much. What we will do is start with the very first one, which comes from, as she goes by, Stupid Whore Energy. This is an objection to you, CJ. Says, Alexander the Great does have contemporary sources. I think she's referring to, I think you had maybe mentioned earlier that if we held the uh, Dr. Carrier's standards to other historical figures, that we wouldn't be able to believe them as well. But Stupid Whore Energy seems to be saying that, hey, but we do have contemporary sources for Alexander the Great. Uh, well, so I would want to clarify, I guess, what, and to be fair, apologists don't typically clarify what they mean when they say that the biographical evidence for Jesus is equal to Alexander's. Um, when we have contemporary references to Alexander, the references that we have are, you know, th in like speeches, for example, uh, and letters and things like that. Um, but they're not biographical in the sense that we have like uh, the, you know, the gospels or, or things of that nature. Um, now, I certainly do believe that there is a evidence of that nature as well. But if we look at actual biographical information, it doesn't come till almost 300 years after Alexander the Great exists. Uh, and I'd also point out that I disagree with the notion that there's no contemporary uh, witnesses of Jesus, right? I, I believe Matthew, John, Peter, and James, at least, and possibly also Jude, 
would be eyewitnesses and that uh, Paul, Mark, and Luke would be alive, adult, and in the same area, meaning, you know, obviously contemporaries of um, Jesus. So did not, uh, did we lose Dr. Carrier? Yeah, I think we did. However, I'm confident he'll be back in a moment. I'm going to keep an eye on my email as well as the Zoom window in case he jumps back in. And in the meantime, we'll stick with just questions for you, CJ. And that way, uh, they are fitting with who we still have. Now, don't worry, folks. CJ is still here as well. Right now, it's just that the Zoom boxes are scrambled in OBS, and so I blacked them out until I can fix them. And so with Dr. Carrier's return, it'll look back to normal in just a moment. But you can hear CJ as he answers this question, which is from, you guessed it, Stupid Horror Energy Strikes Again, saying, what does CJ make of the fact that you have exact accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke that are verbatim word for word? Uh, well, I think there's a couple things that could easily explain that. First off, I, I do think if Matthew did write the Gospel of Matthew and in the Aramaic or Hebrew tongue, which I think when Papias refers to it as being Hebrew, he probably means Aramaic because we're I'm, I'm sure he I'm more than certain he did not know the difference. Um, as most people probably would not at that time, right? Because that'd be the language the Hebrew people would be speaking. Um, if that is the case, it would make a lot of sense that somebody like Mark, especially if he's hearing the memoirs from Peter, to want to write that for uh, a Gentile audience, a more Greek-speaking audience. I'd also point out that Luke actually just explicitly tells us that he is using other sources. So it, it's no surprise there that he would have uh, some verbatim claims and things like that. Uh, also, I would you know point out that if Matthew was a tax collector and a publican like it is claimed in the book of Matthew, then um, it is entirely possible that he could have been you know a, some kind of like a note keeper on his own personal time and things like that. He probably would have been a very organized person. Uh, and that could explain why he has such sharp recollection, even without things like, you know, things that I would believe as a Christian, like inspiration of the Holy Spirit and so on. Gotcha. And thank you for your next question. What I'm going to do is just to be sure that Dr. Carrier can get back in. If it's a, I don't know if it would help, but I'm going to shoot him a text with the Zoom info. And if it's something like his battery then we might have to have the Q&A, the questions for Dr. Carrier, maybe a bit later. Please don't hurt me, everyone. Okay, next up. Thank you for your question. This one comes in from Scott Duke. Thanks so much for your kind words. Says this is a model debate going on here. Keep up the great work, James and Associates. Thanks so much, Scott. That seriously is encouraging. And like, yeah, I couldn't agree more. This has been so fun to just get to listen and not be stressed out over, <laughs> over worrying about how heated things we're going to get. So this has been awesome. And yes, like I said, I'm going to shoot this text over right now. But in the meantime, we have another Super Chat. This one coming in. We're going to look for others for CJ. Wow, this is... Well, we do. Barry Barry, thanks for your Super Chat, says... T-Jump's chair better watch its back. Dr. Carrier's car seat is the hot, H-A-W-T, new seat meme. Well, yes. We, are, we really appreciate Dr. Carrier. Basically, he had his internet 
at his home, which he lives up in the mountains, it got wiped out, basically. Something went wrong today um, outside of his control. He got in his car and drove down the mountain to where he could eventually have enough service to be able to be, you know, in touch with us. And so we really do appreciate him going the extra mile there. And so, let's see. Got, uh... So sorry, just like... You can tell I'm a boomer. Two seconds. Almost got it. Fair enough. All right. Next question. Thanks so much for your super chat from Stupid Whore Energy bringing the hammer down once again. Oh, I think we've got Dr. Carrier back. Awesome. Yes, I'm back. Thrilled to have you. No problemo. And uh, we have just been reading questions that were addressed to CJ in the meantime. So we are still, we've been moving along. And so uh, let's see. What we'll do is go back just to get Dr. Carrier some questions in the meantime. And uh, this one comes in from Hunter Bailey, who says, Dr. Carrier, how do you determine someone to be historical that is actually historical figure on earth? Is there a historical method in particular that you use? Please give me the details from Sentinel Apologetics. Yeah, um, of course. I mean, this always happens. I've written a whole book on this. Uh, <laughs> um, Proving History uh, is my book on historical methodologies and how we do it. Uh, although I think uh, you're asking, I think what they're asking is more of like the particular nitty gritty of how we do this. And uh, to do that, I think the best example would be to go look at my, heart, my article on Hannibal uh, in, um, on my blog, or uh, in my book, Jesus from Outer Space, I have a whole chapter on this, right, where I go through historical figure after historical figure and show, like, why, do we, why are we so sure these guys existed? And like, I go through the kinds of evidence we have and why it matters. Uh, and it's like what, why we have good, good kinds of evidence. But there's also the, the, the reference class information, too, is like, what kind of person is this? So, like, if it's, if it's a general who fought in a war, they tend to exist, right? So we already start with, a, you know, a positive. In the evidence column, we're already like, probably they existed. Um, but if you're starting with, you know, a savior god who communicates to people from heaven, you're starting in a different column, right? You're, you're starting in a category of people that usually don't exist. So, uh, so Jesus is actually starting the race behind. Uh, compared to other people like Hannibal and so on. But even then, it, it should be easy to build enough evidence. If, if there was strong evidence for Jesus, it should be easy to build enough evidence to show that he's the exception to the rule, right? And we just don't have that. And so when you look at like the evidence we have for Socrates, the evidence we have uh, for Hannibal, the evidence we have for Alexander the Great, um, or even Pontius Pilate, for example, uh, is better than we have for Jesus. If we had for Jesus anything we had for those guys, this would not be a debate. And, and if you want to see what I mean... Uh, I do talk about it in those places. So, like, my, my, I have an article on Spartacus as well as another one on, online. All of this stuff, by the way, is in that chapter in Jesus from Outer Space, the new book that's coming out in October. Uh, so if you want to see what that looks like and, and why these are different categories of people and why the evidence is different for them, uh, that's the place to go to. You got it. Thanks so much for that. And thanks so much for your question. This one coming in from Sunflower said, Dr. Carrier said that, quote, in that time, place, or era, it was commonplace for figures like Jesus to be mythical, but represented as historical. And then they asked, who are some examples? 
yeah. Um, so we've got, uh, oh gosh, we get Osiris, Dionysus, Romulus. Um, you can go through a whole list of figures. Uh, like, In fact, even, of course, in mainstream scholarship, Moses is put in this category. Moses and the patriarchs are regarded as mythical people that were put in history centuries later uh, to convey, uh, to communicate the teachings of the Jews at the time. Um, but even within the pagan uh, background, we have a similar thing. There was a similar thing in the Middle Ages with saints. A lot of the saints were made up, right, uh, that they were, they were regarded, they were actually like reinterpretations of pagan gods, right? Like you take a saint and invent a historical person who's basically taking the role away of a pagan god that used to hold that role. And you can look in the, the literature on the saints. But I think the best examples are the ones that I use from the ancient world. And that's, for example, the rank raglan class of heroes, one of the main categories. Um, Aesop is another one. But if you want to look at the ones that look most like Jesus, where you start with a celestial deity who, and is a savior deity who gets ported into history as a person uh, interacting in a historical way on Earth, uh, that's when you get to Dionysus, Romulus, Osiris, and, and these other figures that started as celestial beings and got converted into uh, historical saviors. Gotcha. Thank you very much. And thank you to you uh, to Dr. S.J. Thomason has a question. This is for Dr. Carrier. She asks, why didn't Luke include the martyrdoms of Peter and Paul in Acts if Acts was written after they happened? For example, Stephen and James were included in Acts, or namely their martyrdoms. Yeah, um, well, the, there are a variety of reasons. Uh, the, the variety, we don't know, first of all, he doesn't say. Um, but there are a variety of reasons it could be. One is that the entire narrative of Acts is pro-Roman, right? The entire thing is Romans always come in and save the day. They always let Paul off. They always do nice things to Paul. They always save Paul from the Jews. The last thing you're going to end that book with is the Romans killing the killing Paul, right? Because that, that kills the entire narrative of the book. Um, now, the book of Acts is aware of the death of Paul. There's, there's a scene where Paul says goodbye uh, to people in a foreign city before he goes to Rome, and his speech very clearly voices that he's going to die, right? So the author of Acts knows Paul is dead, right? He knows he's going to die, but he doesn't want to narrate that story. He wants to end on a high note. He, wants, he get, went to Rome. He was allowed to teach freely. The end. And it's like, we're just not going to, we'll just pretend that's where it ended. That, that's basically the, the most plausible reason. And this is, most mainstream scholars agree that this is why, this is one of the reasons why Acts ends there. Um, and uh, th so that's, and, and, and like I said, Acts has that historical consciousness of the death of Paul. And then when you add to that the fact that, that Luke and Acts clearly reference Josephus, or using Josephus' antiquities as a source, puts Luke way after the 90s, or at least late in the 90s, basically, A.D., which is, you know, long after Paul is dead. Uh, and, and we could go into the evidence as to why, like, the, the evidence is sometimes kind of funny and interesting as to why we know uh, Luke relied on Josephus. But, but there's extensive writing on this. Richard Pervo's books, his commentary on Acts, his, his book, The Mystery of Acts, um, these go into it. There are other scholars who have written on this. Uh, it is kind of the, the growing mainstream view right now. You got it. Thank you. And thank you. Again, S.J. Thomason for your question. This is an interesting one, more of a combination of, you might say, theology, philosophy, psychology, all rolled into one. Asks, would Dr. Carrier bend a knee for Jesus if he knew beyond a doubt that Jesus really resurrected from the dead? So that I think, wouldn't be enough. Huh? I, I, would, I, I would need, if I'm going to bend the knee, I need to know that Jesus is worthy of it. Uh, just 
being supernatural, rising from the dead, even just being a god is not enough. Like, you actually have to be a good person who actually acts compassionately uh, and acts justly and believes in spreading justice and compassion in the world. And that means actually taking action to do it. Um, right now, the history of the world does not suggest any such Jesus existed. So if suddenly one showed up, I would be deeply suspicious. It would be like Ardra on the, uh, in the uh, Star Trek Next Generation. Um, it would be some you know, supernaturally powerful person who clearly does not have compassion and justice as their main mission agenda on Earth. Uh, I'm not going to bend my knee to that person. I'd rather, rather be killed by them than that. Gotcha. And thank you, Luis Ramiro. Appreciate your question. Says, Dr. Carrier, about your, quote, one in three chance, unquote, in your opinion, what is the best piece of evidence for a historical Jesus, and why is it not strong enough? Yeah, that's a one item we didn't get into in this debate. Uh, I think, personally, the best evidence that historicists can voice, and I, the only reason I say it's the best is that it, we'd be better off if we didn't have it. Uh, mythicism would be better off if it didn't exist. Uh, and that's um, simply because I think it miscommunicates to people uh, what's going on. It's, it's complicated. The evidence is complicated. And that's Paul's two references to brothers of the Lord. Uh, and the, the historicist argument is, well, if Jesus had brothers and Paul knew him, then Jesus existed. Uh, and that's a completely valid argument, except for the premise is questionable, which is that Paul only tells us that the only kinds of brothers of the Lord that he knows about are cultic brothers. That means baptized Christians. Uh, they become, all baptized Christians become brothers of the Lord. Uh, and so he tells us that. He never makes a distinction between these kinds of brothers of the Lord and biological brothers of the Lord, yet he would have to if he meant something different. So when he talks about brothers of the Lord, he should be saying, oh, I mean brothers of the Lord in the flesh or something like that. And he doesn't. And so I think when you look at it in context, this actually is evidence against the history of Jesus. But if you don't buy that context, if you, if you aren't convinced by that argument, then, uh, then it, it does look like, uh, you know, it does look like confusing evidence. So the question is, I think that evidence is ambiguous, and I make a good case for why it's ambiguous. Uh, and it's this argument that, that Paul clearly knows about brothers of the Lord in the cultic sense. He never gives any clear indication that he knows about brothers of the Lord in the biological sense. And so we can't use this evidence. I think in, in the worst case, or in the best case for historicity, um, I actually count this as evidence for historicity, but weak evidence for historicity. So in my book, I give it, I, I call it as twice as likely if Jesus existed than if he didn't, that Paul would say these things um, on the top end of my margins of error. So I actually allow this to be evidence for historicity. It's just not strong enough because there's too much ambiguity in it. Uh, it's not the kind of smoking gun we'd need. Whereas it would be different if he'd said something like, well, the brothers of the Lord in the flesh or the brothers that Jesus had when he was alive or something. If he said something that very clearly established that he means biological brothers, um, then that would, that would end this debate. I think that would be very strong evidence for the historicity of Jesus. You got it. Thank you very much. And this one coming in from Sigifredo Sarabia. Longtime viewer. Glad to see you, Sigifredo. Says, Dr. Harrier, thank you and a pleasure. Little off the rails, but curious, how would you argue against the Shroud of Turin in Italy, whose face is in that tomb? Wait, wait, what's that last sentence? I don't get the... Yeah, I am... A li oh, I think what they mean is like, I maybe they mean... Uh, so, I think in the Shroud of Turin, it has like the... Allegedly, yeah. there's like a tomb picture 
and then Jesus as well on the tomb picture? I might be wrong. No, yeah, no, the, the Shroud of Turin is a shroud that uh, has an image of supposedly uh, deceased Jesus on it. Uh, the question is, how is that image made? Um, now, there's, there's, been, there's a lot of articles, a lot of peer-reviewed work on this that shows that it was, it's paint. It was someone painted it. Uh, it's, it's a medieval painting. It doesn't even, like, match, like, human, like, logical human dimensions and stuff. Um, and we even have, like, we actually have documentation that it was the forger. We've actually found, like, we know who forged it and so on. Uh, there's a lot of evidence on this. Um, there's a lot of, like, crank, like, crazy conspiracy theory type bogus articles about it as well. So it can be difficult to sift through. Um, there is a bibliography on this, and I have it in on the history of City of Jesus in my book. I, Shroud of Turin might be in the index. I think it should be. Uh, but if not, there's in Chapter 7, I have a footnote explaining why I don't recognize it as evidence. Uh, and, and that footnote lists the leading scholarship on, on what, uh, what should be there and what you should look at to see why the Shroud of Turin is, is bogus. I mean, it was, it was just a human-made image that was being portrayed as somehow supernaturally created by the corpse of Jesus, uh, even though there's not really an intelligible explanation as to how even supernaturally that image was created. Gotcha. Thank you for that. And this next one comes in from Stupid Whore Energy Strikes Again, saying, unless I'm mistaken, Dr. Carrier estimates a four out of five chance that Jesus did not exist. Uh, this last part, I, I think they're maybe asking for clarification because uh, I'm slightly confused. They said, isn't that a very high amount of uncertainty? Basically, 50-50. I'm not sure if she's saying that she thinks that 50-50 would be a more reasonable uh, position rather than the 4 out of 5 or 80% chance that he did not exist. Or did I interpret that right? No, uh, something something amiss there. But uh, Raphael Lataster also published a peer-reviewed monograph uh, questioning the historicity of Jesus. That that he takes the position that it's it's closer to fifty-fifty whether there was a Jesus. Um, no, my I say I conclude that the upper end of my margin of error is one in three. The bottom margin is one in twelve thousand. Uh, but if you want to know how I get to those numbers, that's all that's all in the book, right? As to how I get there. Um, I don't know what the four and five is. Um, that there are certain specific items of evidence. That I that I score that way in the process of it, and so I, maybe they're confusing one of the columns in the uh, the calculating the odds in the book. I don't know, uh, but my actual official conclusion in on the historicity of Jesus is the upper margin is one in three. And yes, I agree that 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 suggests a huge degree of uncertainty, uh, and that's completely expected because the evidence is crap, right? The evidence is so so sparse, so compromised, so. Um, so distorted and so difficult to work with uh, that we should expect a high degree of uncertainty in, a, in an issue like this. In contrast with, for example, the historicity of Joseph Smith, where the evidence is vast, like there should be no, no high margin of error there at all. Like the evidence is really damn good for Joseph Smith. We just, the evidence for Jesus is so complicated and vague and difficult to work with uh, that, that that high level of uncertainty is, did not surprise me at the end of my study. So um, it, it, it fits, I think. You got it. Thank you very much. Next question. This one comes in from Sigifredo Sarabia with another saying, Dr. Carrier, there's a rumor that made it to the History Channel titled The Bloodline of Jesus. Is there no bloodline or search 
in Tom Hanks's movie. Are you trolling us, Sigifredo? I think that they are they they are yeah, serious yeah. about the first part on like your thoughts on it being on the History Channel. That the search people, for it. Yeah, there are people who seriously try to argue that Jesus has living descendants or did have living descendants. Um, James Tabor is one of the one of the scholars who does this. Who's not a, I mean, he he actually has qualifications. Like he's actually a real scholar. Uh, I'm not at all convinced by his arguments. I mean, they're they're very. Uh, let's say there's a lot of stretching of plausibility uh, and a lot of uh, stretching of logic to get there. Uh, no, I'm not convinced by that at all. But I, I am aware that there are these a few French scholars who who try to argue that. You got it. And. This, let me just see if we've got one more. We do, yeah. Let's see, we have another question. This one coming in from Rodney Falberg, appreciate it, said only the most radical of atheists would deny Jesus as a man at the very least. You've got a, a critic here, Dr. Carrier. They said, uh, they said it's like saying Odysseus was not a real figure because you don't believe in the Iliad is history. Are they affirming, no, Odysseus didn't exist. I don't, I don't know why they would say that, that he does. Um, that's a funny, that, that almost sounds like a Poe. Um, like anyway, but uh, no, I mean, Odysseus didn't exist. Odysseus is mythical. Uh, Odysseus is an example of like a hero that gets his whole biography written and, and he's attached to a historical event and so, and so on. Um, no, uh, you know, I used to say the same thing. Uh, I used to be adamantly hostile to mythicism and the idea that Jesus didn't exist. Because of course he existed. And, you know, and, and it, his existing doesn't pose a problem for atheism. Like, it's like, yeah, we, have, we know tons of examples of gurus who get exaggerated tales about them in life and stuff like that. You know, religious leaders who get these kinds of myths told about them later. Um, so a historical Jesus is entirely compatible with my worldview. Um, and I used to be pretty, pretty sure that it was a, a demonstrable point. Um, it was only when uh, people started getting me to actually look into it, and then eventually uh, I did a research postdoc research grant uh, that my fans got together, and I did a whole research project on it. Spent six years researching it, and that's when I really came to conclude, like, actually, no. Like, when I look at the evidence, it doesn't hold up. And so I had to go where the evidence led. I was perfectly prepared to make a really competent and strong secular defense for a mundane historical Jesus. The evidence just didn't go that way. Uh, and that surprised me, ultimately. You bet. Thank you. And don't worry, CJ, we've got a question coming up for you. We've only got two more here. We've got Jake4D, like, who says, uh, let's see, great discussion, more of this, James, and less flat earth and conspiracies. <laughs> Appreciate that. Well, you know, we're, we're sick. We'll, at least we'll admit it. We like our conspiracy theory debates. But I agree more of this this was honestly a true pleasure and this is one that we'll remember it's been a really fun one and so glad you loved it too jake and also they said is there anything uh in jesus from outer space i think they mean the way that you used it uh dr carrier in referring to the idea like jesus ascending and they say that's not also on the historicity of jesus i'm not exactly sure what they mean by that about my books. So the peer-reviewed monograph is On the Historicity of Jesus. That's the title of the book. Uh, that was published by Sheffield Phoenix uh, and in 2014, and it's, it's almost 700 pages. Uh, it's, it's filled with footnotes, tons of the huge bibliography. You know, it's like it's a very dense academic book, a uh, very serious academic book. 
Uh, and and that's, a, that's the peer-reviewed monograph arguing this thesis. And just recently, I'm, I'm in October, it's going to launch. You can pre-order it now on Amazon, Kindle and print, is my shorter pop market version, which is just 200 pages, Jesus from Outer Space, which is the title. Uh, and what they're asking is, is there anything in Jesus from Outer Space, the book, that's not in the other book? And the answer is yes. Uh, I'll, I'll do two things in that book. Actually, no, keep, my, keep your eye on my blog. I'm going to post a blog about it tomorrow. So by the end of tomorrow, uh, you'll get to read about it, uh, what's in the book and you know, what's not in the book and so on. But very quickly, it, Jesus from Outer Space, that book, distills the arguments down to this, the bare essentials of the argument and then, then focuses on those bare essentials more in, in a way of trying to explain why these are persuasive arguments or why you should find them persuasive arguments. And in doing that, I've reconstructed the arguments to anticipate what the critics have said about from on the, on the history of Jesus. So there is basically it's a redesigned way of making the case that is responsive to the usual criticisms. So if you want to see why the case holds up, even against criticism, you'll want to see Jesus from outer space. You want to see how the argument proceeds in there. Uh, and, and that's, that's, there's a, a variety of things in there that are new in that sense. Uh, and so uh, that, I think, I hope answers their question. Gotcha. Thank you very much. We have a next question. This one just flew in. Go men. Thanks for your question. Said to Dr. Carrier, what are your thoughts on the book 23 Minutes in Hell? I, I don't know the book. Sorry. <laughs> you got it. No problem. And we have, let's see. Did we, we lose you? Let's see. Did we lose you, CJ? Oh, CJ, where'd you go? We, we're going to wait on CJ to come back. We have a question from Iron Charioteer. He's been patiently waiting. We appreciate that, Iron. And we'll give CJ about 60 seconds because we're, we're like right at the end. I want to remind you folks, both Dr. Carrier and CJ are linked in the description. So if you'd like to hear more of these guys, you can hear more by clicking on those links below. Also, let's see, we may have had another question. Let's see. Also, want to let you know we are excited that if you have not heard, want to let you know Modern Day Debate has invaded the podcast world. So we are excited. We are on every major podcast app. If you're not finding us on your favorite podcast app, let us know. We'll work to get on there for you. Of course, all of our podcasts are free, and so we hope that that's a value to you. We're, we're kind of getting the hang of this new podcast deal. So, you know, we're learning about trimming uh, music off and things like that to make it a little bit more short and sweet. So thanks for your patience on that, folks. And we may wrap it up. I'm, I'm just a little bit like I, I hate doing this to CJ, but uh, let's see. We'll mention we are very excited. We will be back for we've got like six consecutive debates if this Friday happens, which I, I think it will. So we'll be back tomorrow for a juicy, controversial debate on, you guessed it, a conspiracy theory pictured on the bottom right of your screen. So that should be a lot of fun. But also, first time we have ever had the topic, this coming Tuesday, it's going to be on whether or not the Bible considers men and women as equal. So that's going to be Godless Granny is going to be a newcomer. We're really excited to have her come onto the show, as well as we're going to have Joshua come onto the show for the first time as well. So that should be a lot of fun to have them. And then, oh, hold on. CJ is in the chat. Okay, so he says, I am so sorry. And... 
He hadn't mentioned what happened. I'm, it might be... Let's see. So I'm, I'm not sure. Let's, let me just double check that he's not trying to enter the Zoom chat in case he wants to say goodbye. Uh, let's see. He said, I may be able to answer the question from here. <laughs> okay. Um, let's see. Um, we, we might save that question for next time because we do have CJ on this coming Thursday. Uh, that's going to be a debate on slavery in the Bible. So that should be another juicy one. That's going to be a tag team debate this Thursday. So we'll have you uh, here for that, CJ. And and I, I hate to cut you short, but just because I appreciate uh, especially I want to let uh, Dr. Carrier go given his, his uh, like we said, we appreciate your flexibility given your connections tonight in terms of internet and things like that. Thanks so much for kind of rolling, you know, kind of easy going, rolling with it and being willing to still make it. We really appreciate you doing that. Thank you. Absolutely. Yeah. Our pleasure. And so with that, folks, we hope you keep sifting out the reasonable from the unreasonable. We hope you have a great rest of your night. We will hopefully see you tomorrow. And thanks so much, everybody. Take care.